1: half and a half minutes after 12 you're listening to SENZ Mark Watson with you through to 4 telephone number 0800 150 811 the temper bed post text machine double eight double three. we are taking your calls now between 12 and 1 looking forward to having your company after 1 o'clock we head to Australia tennis commentator Drew Lilly we'll look back over the last two days of the Australian Open and preview some of the big matches that are still to come good for 35 year old Andy Murray in his comeback thrilling 5-set victory over 13th seed Matteo Berrettini at the Australian Open last night. The big game on the women's side is Great Britain's Radakanu up against the ASB Auckland Classic winner in Coco Gauff. We're going to talk with the New Zealand surfing champion who was crowned New Zealand surfing champion at Piha over the weekend. And find out a little bit more about him. So looking forward to that indeed. We round about three o'clock, we will talk cricket. The New Zealand team in action against India tonight in the first one day international. But yeah, June June Kennings, the New Zealand surfing champion, round about two o'clock. All that and a lot more. Just want to mention to Liverpool, of course, this morning getting up in their third round replay against Wolves to progress through to the next round of the FA Cup. One goal to nil. So well done to my mob. Well done to Liverpool Football Club. I Look, it is an opportunity for you to have your say. Anything that you may have heard throughout the morning, anything that you may have heard yesterday or that's been on your mind or that you want to bring up, that you want to tell us about, we'd love to hear from you. Um, we sort of sit down and we decide what should we chat about? What's relevant? What's interesting? What might be some of the talking points? And sometimes we just overlook things. Um, for no good reason. And somebody brings up a point point, we go, wow, really, really good point. Um, and have no problem agreeing to disagree either. Um, yeah, so, hey, we are set to go. We are locked and loaded. We are like a coil spring just waiting to explode out of the blocks. Right. Now, so we did sit down. We said, well, hey, look, what are some of the talking points? And for some reason it came up about Nick Kerrios, who's just pulled out of the Australian Open. And Nick Kerrios has this sort of um, fly-on-the-wall type series going on on Netflix at the moment. And really what it sums up is that Nick Kerrios is a flawed genius. And that then... We found that on the Herald Sun website, which is out of Australia, they had the top five most hated athletes of the decade. Now, just the decade. They had former Paralympic athlete Oscar Pistorius at one. They had Nick Kerrios at two. Aaron Hernandez, NFL player, guilty of murder, ended up taking his own life. David Warner, the cricketer. Sun Yang, Chinese swimmer. Alex Rodriguez, American baseball player, catcher. And Luis Suarez, the cannibal, the biter of football, former Liverpool man, successful with Barcelona. And I'm sitting there going, okay, last decade perhaps, but really Nick Carrios? What has Nick Kyrgios actually done? He throws a tennis racket. He has a crack at some umpires. He loses his rag. But the only one it really affects is Nick Kyrgios. But tennis is better for it. He brings some colour. He's a throwback to the days of John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, Vitas Gerolitis, the likes of Nastasi. The Brat Pack, the bad boy. Sport needs the villains to have its heroes. So I'm going to ask you the question, what do you think of Nick Kyrgios? Let's be honest, he played an exhibition match on Friday night before the Australian Open on Rod Laver Arena against Novak Djokovic and it sold out in 59 minutes. This guy, like it or not, is box office. So who are your most hated athletes and why? And who are the great villains? Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one is the number. We would love to get your thoughts on this one. What defines a villain? Why would Kyrios be number two on this list? How can you be ahead of a murderer? How can you be ahead of a drug cheat? I mean, how can you be ahead of David Warner? I mean, there's always been a bad boy in the Australian cricket team. I think Australia as a nation have always, more so than New Zealand, and maybe maybe it's just heightened here because we go back to underarm incidents, we go back to some dubious refereeing and umpiring decisions. So when a bad boy appears in Australia, it we're a little bit more heightened. We're a little bit more sensitive to it. But... And let's be honest, I, 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 I know we've got our Australian owners sitting out here, but when it comes to bad boys, it's not that difficult to find them in Australian sport, L- let's be honest. I, I mean, they put Ned Kelly, he's a national hero, isn't he? Chopper Reed's a national hero, it sort of sums up the psyche a little bit of the Australians at times. But I'd like to know who your bad boys are and why Nick Kyrgios. We need bad boys, don't we? We need colour back in sport. I mean, look at rugby in this country. It's just so damn boring now. Let's talk to the player. Oh, yeah, another boy said, well, it was a game of two halves. Yeah, you know, we had a good chat at half time. And um, yeah, and so we just came out and, you know, all credit to the forwards. Okay, yeah, thanks for that. Brilliant. Um, and then you talk to the next player. Yeah, no, um, we had a good chat at half time. And um, yeah, boys came, played really well in that first half. And yeah, um, yeah, credit to their forwards. Um, yeah, no, nah, thanks. And that's about all you get out of them, May. Eh? There's no angst anymore. You know, you need the Jose Mourinho's of this world in football. You create another narrative which creates even more excitement. You know, I, 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 I go back to the days of Hewitt, the Australian tennis player, and he had some colour, didn't he? And he didn't endear himself to the Australian public initially, but he was passionate. He was a little bit brash, but everyone loves him now. We love the flawed geniuses. uh, Goran Ivonezovic was another. Finally wins Wimbledon, one of the great moments. Then we had Sampras come along, serve and volley, boring. Agassi brought a bit of swagger and a bit of colour and more around the commercial side of it, I think. You know, you go back to the great, and in fairness, you know, I've been sort of tongue-in-cheek having a crack at the Aussies, but you do go back to the Dennis Lilies and the Jeff Thompsons. Even the underarm distance, uh, underarm incident with the Chapel Brothers, they were rogues, but cricket was never more popular. Kevin Tarmody in rugby league. Greg Dowling, one of the great punch-ups, iconic moment. Yet I'm sure those two guys catch up now. The phone probably always rings because of that one moment for both of them. Asked to come and speak. Tell us about the tell us about the Tarmody moment. Tell us about the Greg Dowling moment. Um, Oscar Pistorius, interesting one. I um, one of probably the few people in this country that's actually met and actually had lunch with the guy. I, I was lucky enough. In 2011, not not lucky enough to meet Oscar Pistorius, I shouldn't say it that way, but I, I was very fortunate in 2011 to be given the opportunity to call the IPC Track and Field World Championships. Now, IPC is that governing body that looks after parasport, para-athletics, and they were held here in New Zealand. It was two weeks before the earthquake. It was the last major event held at QE2 Stadium, and Oscar Pistorius was over here, and um I called a number of his races that he competed in and boy, the four by 100 meter relay between South Africa and the United States was a classic. The hundred meters between himself and um, Jerome Singleton in the United States was an absolute beauty as well. But we started talking about, we were just sitting there in the grandstands just having some lunch and we started talking about rugby in both countries and he started out as a rugby player. And to be fair, he he, he came across as a pretty um, nice guy. Um, and I went to his press conference in London where he competed as an able-bodied athlete, competed as an amongst the able-bodied athletes at the um, Olympic Games, not the Paralympics. And there was a lot of discussion around the blades and whether there was an unfair advantage or not. And, you know, it was quite well justified. I thought they, the science they brought to the table was fair enough. I think he made the semifinals. No one quite expected him to go on and murder his girlfriend. And clearly in that moment, any reputation that he had, any legend that he had, He clearly has lost, and it's easy to see why he is amongst those most hated athletes. I think even though O.J. Simpson was found not guilty of murder, I think a lot of people still believe that perhaps he got away with it. And I can understand why people like O.J. Simpson are hated, but they're hated. They've actually been involved or incriminated with some pretty serious crimes. Then you've got the others, the likes of Bill Lambert, absolute rogue for the Detroit Pistons, just a bully, physical and rough. And that was the Detroit style, beating up on the likes of Michael Jordan. Brought some colour, brought some angst, brought something different. And sports always had its grubs. Someone's just texting in, Paul Gallen in rugby league, that comes from Graham. Someone said, Mark, you're the Nick Curios of New Zealand broadcasting, entertaining, opinionated and different. Top knot echelon. Must have come from my wife or my mum. My mum texts me in, that's not her number though. She's the only thing she's the only one that would ever say something that nice about me. Um anyway, so hey um boys, 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 Karen, jump on here, mate. Jump on here and if you're more than happy to jump in too, buddy. Um where do you sit on this one? I mean, what defines hated or what defines controversial?
2: Look, what if for me? Just personally, you know, I'm a big football fan and just in recent light, I feel like Cristiano Ronaldo is quite a good one. Who's He was always sort of a villain in the, in the status that it was Ronaldo versus Messi, you know, and a lot of the Messi fans thought Ronaldo was too arrogant and, and too cocky for for what he was doing. But going on Piers Morgan, speaking out against his club, doing the things he did, now ditching uh, Manchester United and Portugal to go play for El Nasser in Saudi Arabia, a lot of people could consider... Cr7 a villain now, Yeah,
1: but it's not nearly as bad as taking sandpaper and rubbing a cricket ball, is it? Well,
2: then what has Nick Kyrgios done? Nothing. You know, that's, that's the argument. Point. That's what we're saying, isn't What's it? He so done? It's, it's. I think there's there's different sorts of villains, and I think the Ronaldo one is more of a, a passion. Yeah, but, but I think in
1: 15, 20 years' time, all that'll be forgotten, and people will remember the genius of Cristiano Ronaldo exactly. Won't they? The I legacy. Mean, people of like the first Aaron Hernandez years. are going to look at a guy who may have taken too many head knocks, became a little bit crazy with it in the NFL, and did some pretty serious, um, you know involved in murder etc pretty hard to forgive any of that because all you have to do is think about the victim's parents and then you can understand Pistorius I mean Sun Yang um, drug cheats in sport to me it's fraud I mean why isn't Armstrong on here? Why do people still endear themselves to Lance Armstrong? What because everybody was on it? That makes it okay? Do you think that American
2: athletes are a bit more prone to the protection of this? Because that's that's what it seems like to me reading that list, I know it was an Australian list by the the, uh, Morning Herald was it? But it's just, I feel like there should be a lot more. We talk about the Bonds. We talk about these sorts of athletes that uh, are proven cheats, but their, their legacy still holds uh, quite still quite to a high value. Well, Do you think that is because of American sport?
1: Well, I always remember, you know, th- there was a time when I think there was a four-by-100-metre relay, and I'm not sure if it was London Olympics, but Chinese girl swims the final leg and might have been the 400 IM anyway, swims the last 100 metres faster than some of the men, or one of the legs faster than some of the men, and because she's out of Chinese, automatically labelled a drug cheat. Meanwhile, you get Katie Ledecky at 14 years of age, winning four Olympic Games gold medals, and everyone just says, oh, the great Katie Ledecky, the next great considered American. Considered a freak, on. isn't it? Yeah. If you put a Chinese or a Russian name next to her, everybody would have pointed the finger. If, every, if, if you take Chris Freeman in the sport of cycling, now he's never been caught for anything, nor was Armstrong. Um, but if you attach a Chinese or a Russian name or an Eastern European name to him with his track record, you automatically point the finger. But because he's British or because they're American, because we can identify with them, we tend to think, oh, yeah, but we're righteous and we're upstanding and we don't do those sort of things. And people go to me, oh, yeah, but Armstrong, he was never, you know, oh, but he, he never. He never actually got caught. And, you know, I see these athletes at the moment out there doing remarkable things, and I'm so cynical, and I just go, yeah, but he, he's doping. No, he's not. He's never been caught. My answer to that is, was Al Capone only guilty of tax evasion? Because he wasn't caught for anything else. He wasn't convicted of murder. Was he only guilty of tax evasion? Mm, oh no. 800 biggest fill-in, some text, great texts coming in. Biggest fill-in for me is John Ashworth for his despicable stamp on J.P.R. Williams. He looked like Frankenstein monster as he left the field. Yeah, and that hasn't been forgotten either by um, J.P.R. Williams. In fact, John Ashworth, I sent sent him a bottle of wine, I think J.P.R. Williams said it tasted like vinegar. Uh, Surely Mike Tyson should be on most lists. Yeah, Mike Tyson, colourful character, you know, convicted of rape. Uh, Really, really tough upbringing. Brutally tough upbringing, no excuse for it though. But people have endeared themselves to Tyson, haven't they? It's almost they've wrapped an arm around him and felt a little bit sorry for him. 0800 150811. When we come back, we'll bring a few different sort of villainous highlights off the back of our breaks instead of some music because we've got some beauties. Might even bring a little bit of audio of moi. Moi. That's me. That's me, Mark. I'm talking myself up because no one else does. (laughs) I've got a little bit of commentary actually from uh, those track and field world championships in 2011 actually with Oscar Pistorius. So hey look, jump on the phone, somebody kick this bad boy off. 800 150 or is everybody outside finally, finally getting some sun? Oscar Pistorius in the outside lane from South Africa and here comes Jerome Singleton with In dramatic fashion. Oscar Pistorius on the list of the most hated athletes. Nick Kyrgios is on that list, trying to understand why. Why is Nick Kyrgios on that? What's he done? Throws his toys? I'd have him at number one as one of the great sports entertainers at the moment. One of the great revenue pullers around the world at the moment. Is he really hated? Don't you need the colour? Sport needs it. Or in this culture of do-gooders where we're governed by wokeness, is there just simply no room and a small percentage of people who seem to have the greatest influence in the media are telling us that he's not good for the game. John McEnroe. How many people love John McEnroe? One of the biggest names in sport. One of a number of grand slams but his reputation probably came because of his fiery temper who are your villains and what defines a villain 8015811 now i know that i understand too that we've got a a roundup show also going on around the country so don't have a lot of the south island and we've only got a couple of the centres in the North Island, thus probably a little quiet, so probably a really good opportunity to jump on the phones because often there is not an opportunity to get through. But certainly throw some names out. Someone actually talking about Richard Lowe. Didn't get so upset over the Paul Coroz elbow, but giving Greg Cooper a new cornea. Very grub-like and un-New Zealand. Yeah, Richard Lowe, look, he was an enforcer in rugby, wasn't he? And you could get away with a little bit more, but no worse than a lot of the South African sides. Remember when, um, was it Becker? Um, I'm just trying to remember the other 1956 that came here. So they brought Kevin Skinner into the all-black front row. Kevin Skinner was Australasian boxing champion. They brought him purely into the all-blacks in the second test to sort out the South African front row. I mean, There's always been grubs in rugby, hasn't there? The dark arts at the bottom of the rug. Ruck. But it's funny how once their time is up, we go back and we tend to romanticise them a little bit, don't we? We tend to, oh, I enjoy that guy who brought back the biff. He was a hard man, loved him. We need more lows in the sport, you know, and we do. We tend to. Um, and I do think tennis is a better product for Nick Kerrios. David Warner, I don't know. David Warner brings colour to cricket when I think cricket needs some colour. Cricket's in a really precarious situation at the moment. It's struggling to find its romance again. Crowds are down in all forms of it. I think the novelty of T20 is starting to wear off because there's too much of it. There's no legacy associated with it. One day cricket in the 1980s was just the biggest thing on sport. You had the underarm incident which just set this rivalry between New Zealand and Australia. You had the chapels, then you had the Allen Borders. And you had some colour. You had Shane Warren come along, who wasn't divisive. He was more just a, an absolute character. He was colourful. He knew how to just push a few buttons at times, but he did it in a different way. Wasn't done so much through bullying or anger. You had the West Indians who just intimidated teams. The Joel Garners, the Malcolm Marshall's, And every sport has had their great characters at a time when arguably sport was never more popular. So I want to know who your most hated athletes are and your reasons for it and what defines hate. Basketball. Everyone loves Michael Jordan. The bad boy was the big, tall Bill Lambert. But it's funny when you tell the Michael Jordan story now, part of the legend and part of the aura and part of that narrative are the likes of the Bill Lamberts. They're the supporting cast that add to the legend and I'm going to play some Bill Lambier highlights for you in a moment. But I remember back in 2015, and I was one of them, and I think, just trying to think who the other was, I was one of them, and I came out and said, look, I don't think the All Blacks are going to win the World Cup in 2015. I think Dan Carter should be dropped. And Dan Carter was playing terribly. He came right in the quarterfinal against France, and the rest is history. And people jump on your back and go, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And I go, yeah, but I'm not a coward wise after the fact. I called it and I got it wrong. But actually, the criticism that he was copying actually ultimately then goes on and enhances the legend of Dan Carter. I'll show the critics. I'll prove them all wrong. You know? Same with Beaver, who works on this station. Much maligned for a lot of his career for that performance. Was it in Hong Kong, Singapore? And he was awful in that test. But it was because of that adversity that him then going from whitebait fishing on the Waikato to kicking the penalty at Eden Park created the legend. Now, if he was a good player, not, look, he was a good player, don't get me wrong, he's never been a bad or black. But I mean, if he had have come in with a squeaky clean reputation, there wouldn't have been that much to that story. And so you've got to have the angst, you've got to have the negative, you've got to have the bad boys. 800 someone just texting in, Steve Smith, I don't mind Warner, as he was kind of kind of owned the vitriol you well I mean David Warner is it I mean you look at him he is just that guy isn't he he is just an antagonist he's just an instigator in my opinion Steve Smith came across as this sort of yeah sort of clean cut I respect the game of cricket but ultimately ended up bringing the game into disrepute and really was a court cheat I don't know Is it part of the Australian DNA? (laughs) Can I say that? Can you just not put back in what God left out? Jump on the phone, let us know. Temper text machine, spare lines. Again, we've only got a limited audience on the North Island and those listening to the app. So we'd rather you, me telling you, you tell me. 27 minutes away from one.
3: Yes, indeed. There are punches thrown. Oakley was coming to the defence of Michael Jordan that time. This all happened down right around the
4: foul line area. Lampier and Jordan uh, definitely landed some shots here.
1: And that created the legend of the physical nature of that particular Detroit Pistons team. It was a different style. Jordan talks about it, having to make the adjustment. But again, added to the legend of Michael Jordan. And of course, Bill Lambert is still talked about to this day, isn't he? Look at his numbers, look at his stats. But people talk about Bill Lambert. A text that's come in, Suburb Day here in Wellington, sitting on my deck having lunch and looking out onto a calm Cook Strait and no wind. I want to swim the Cook Strait. That is one of my goals in the next few years. People, you can dislike in sports what makes sports interesting. Some are arrogant, too much for their own good. Uh, another text too that's just come in um, Brad Haddon yeah, always. Brad Haddon got under people's skin didn't he He did he got under people's skin He was a niggler And so we didn't have to like him But I've got a feeling if Haddon had been in the New Zealand team We would have loved him He would have had a cult following here But still to the point of hating him I mean Australians can't help it Okay It's an inherent thing it's a cultural thing. I'm going to lose my job here, aren't I? Because we've got an Australian boss sitting out there at the moment probably listening to this. But it's a New Zealand audience, and I'm playing up to the New Zealand audience. <laughs> anyway, let's go to the phones. Hi, Zaid.
5: Hi. One I've got um, that probably a few people will hate is um, war piece."
1: Yeah, Ron test.
5: Yeah, yeah, the basketball player. Yeah. No for the um, Malice in the Palace Brawl. Um, yeah, definitely Louis Suarez but three players and that just just shouldn't be happening. Um so yeah, not the biggest fan of Louis Suarez and um I support Chelsea and he obviously uh bit Nikola Ivanovich that time as well. So Oh yeah, but he deserved it. There. He
4: deserved it.
1: But um <laughs> just joking, Zay.
5: <laughs> and um probably John Jones as well, of the UFC fighter, you know, he's uh um, yeah. Yeah, usually it be, yeah. It beats up his wife a few times. Yeah, like in the cocaine and so. Yeah, there's no yeah. excuse
1: for any of that stuff. Anybody that does that beats up women or does that sort of dumb stuff, mate. I got zero time for them, and I know there are a lot. Look, I know a few players that we can't mention because they've got uh, name suppression, yeah. um, and why they're given name suppression is beyond me. But they are, and um, you know it happens here in New Zealand, makes some of New Zealand's leading athletes as well. Uh, no,
5: nah, and uh, yeah, Paul Gallen. <laughs>
1: Yeah, now Paul Gallen. I, I was lucky enough, actually, years ago, to interview Paul Gallen for an hour in the studio. He was over mm-hmm. here for the fight for life, and I've got to say, he came across as quite a nice guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I just I, that, I, I do. I see that
5: polarizing character?
1: Yeah, I, I do sense well, a certainly with some sports, and you do look at you look at always the stuff that happens off the field in rugby league more so than anybody, and you do wonder. And I'm certainly not laying. Anyone in particular. But you do wonder how many of these guys would be in jail if they weren't playing professional sport, mate. Because I reckon the sport's kept yeah, a lot of these guys on the tracks. And right, I think a yeah. lot of them are borderline to going off the tracks, even with the league. Hey, Zade, lovely to have you on the program. Great, greatly appreciated. Uh, Mark from Christchurch says, Don't know about villainous, but Warner certainly number one on the most annoying list. Yeah, but I think we'd love him if he was here. But yeah, well, I think the Steve Smith one irks me more. Because he had that sort of squeaky, clean little sort of pretty boy look about him. And, you know, the sandpaper on the ball thing, that wasn't the first time they'd done it. That was just the first time they got caught. Let's not kid ourselves there. They didn't just decide in one test to suddenly come out and do that, they've been doing it for a long time. A big game for football fans FIFA Women's World Cup friendly warm up against the world champions USA. Tonight, Sky Stadium in Wellington. Yeah, no, good luck to the football ferns. What are they expecting a crowd of around about 10,000? This will be a really good gauge on just where this New Zealand women's team's at. I've watched a lot of the football ferns and they just lack a midfield. Just lack a quality midfield. But that seems to run right through all of New Zealand teams. You know, I think part of it is growing up in this country playing in the mud with better grounds now, better drainage more artificial turfs. hopefully in time the next generation actually learn to be comfortable on the ball, I think that's the thing I notice with New Zealand football teams is we're just not that comfortable we're just not that comfortable with the ball at our feet, we just don't seem to have that time, 20 minutes away from one you're listening to SENZ Oh dear,
6: oh oh dear 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 have another look. It looks to me, there I say it, that he's had a little bite at Cialini. Surely not again.
1: Yes, uh, Luis Suarez, the great football biter, I think three occasions he's been picked up for biting people. I'm not sure why you want to bite somebody. We saw Mike Tyson um, back in the day, didn't we? Um, involved uh, in a little bit of a biting incident, arguably the most famous biting incident Tyson, colourful character. But for some reason, I think people have adopted him as a lovable rogue, even though he was convicted of rape. I think there's a lot of narrative that some people have bought into that perhaps he wasn't guilty of that and that, you know, there was some sort of miscarriage of justice. But the reality is, he was found guilty of it, and therefore you have to say that he was guilty of it. Um. Yeah, Van de We might even bring you some audio of that shortly. Uh, but we've got Scott on the phone. Hi, Scott. Thanks for waiting.
4: No worries, Wado. How are you going? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, of oh, oh, you know, it's been said quite a few of the Australian cricket team. It's, it's hard not to put nearly all of them in there. To be totally honest, oh, I agree with um, you, hundred percent. Yeah, know, it's just, oh, just. You know, it's just how they become when they get in that team for some reason. And um, out of, obviously, Haddon and Warner and Smith that have already been mostly said, I'll definitely chuck Stark in there as well. Um, Well, it seems
1: you look at at Mitchell Stark, you look at his figures and his bowling averages pre-Sandpaper Gate and then look post-Sandpaper Gate and ask yourself if that Sandpaper Gate was a one-off or it had been going on for a long time. And I think the statistics would suggest that um, that wasn't the first time they'd done it, it was just the first time they were caught.
4: Exactly. I mean, you're, you're going to keep doing it until you get caught. That's, that's the whole issue. And um, as you say, his, his stats weren't quite as good afterwards as they were before that. Um, mm. So I'll definitely add him in. Um, from a rugby league side of thing, Willie Mason and Greg Bird. Uh, <laughs> definitely those Brilliant. Two.
1: Yeah, <laughs> You can't go wrong with that. Um, yeah.
4: No, no, and um, I'm I'm going to chuck in just just to end it with a the couple more Liverpool players just for you, uh, Carragher, Gerrard, and uh, Fowler.
1: Yeah. What you want to anoint them saints? <laughs> no, no.
4: Be, be, being an Evertonian for for my country, oh, okay. you know. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah.
1: How, I, ha, I, how how's um how's the championship <laughs> looking for next year?
4: Uh, we're definitely going to have a great stadium in the championship. I can it's, it's send you. I can. I can yeah, you
1: got a new stadium. You're going to be in the championship. I can send you a map of where all those teams that you're going to be playing are. Uh, it's no. It's, I'll all. It's just been a bloody
4: disaster this. This for the last few seasons. To be yeah, honest. look, uh, and, and it's it, it's not a co- it's shocking. it's
1: not a coaching issue, is no. it? It's board level at Everton, and if you no. keep changing the coaches, then you're not actually addressing the underlying
4: issue. No, no, and, and I mean it's. You know the fa- ah, the board's just trying to divide yeah. the fans even more at the moment, and um, you know I'm Frank Lampard. He's not the best best manager or anything, but it, he's been on a hiding to nothing from the start. Yeah. Unfortunately for him, and um, yeah, you know we, we're we're going to have no money to spend once again as well, and uh, all these dodgy rumours about headlocks and and uh, um, board members being spat at and everything, which. Uh, have been come out to say that they're, they're not actually entirely true and, and the board saying that they're advised by the police not to, to be at the ground, which uh, wasn't actually true
1: either. Yeah, no, interesting, because I remember always watching, was it Everton you won the First Division? What, 1985, was it? 84? Um,
4: 85, 85
1: and 87, yeah. yeah. 85, the FA Cup derbies with Liverpool. I remember when Everton came out here and played Auckland. I mean, we remember going to watching that. I think that was about 1989. In fact, I travelled out to their hotel and I still have the programme signed by most of the Everton team.
4: Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, no, it's 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 you know it, it's well you know being an Evertonian it's un it's unfortunate and it's, it is absolutely frustrating. I can't say what I really want to say on the radio, but no, but you know you. you know what I like about
1: you know what I like about you, Scott. You sound like you're a true Diehard Everton fan. You live it, you breathe it, you wear it, you go through the highs and the lows. You're not one of these populists that just jumps teams. You are doing it tough at the moment. See, the Premier League just wouldn't be the same if we suddenly lost West Ham and we suddenly lost Everton. See, I could do with, I, I can handle the Premier League without a Fulham. Um, I can handle the Premier League without a Brentford, but not the
4: great clubs. No, no. And, and it's just, you yeah, know, there's no simple fix to it, unfortunately, at the moment either, um, apart from the board going. Mm. Um, and basically starting again but you know uh, unfortunately I mean the only positive is, is we're not cut adrift at the moment we're, we're still mm. sitting right in there mm. so somehow if we can get a couple of run uh, games together we can uh, possibly pull away but it is going to be tough unfortunately
1: It's amazing how much animosity there is from Everton towards Liverpool though I saw an interview with Peter Reid and he just can't stand Liverpool yeah.
4: no no. Oh my, my dad my dad's an Italian, and That's where it all comes from and, and I've spent time over there in that as well and um yeah, I would never use the word hates or anything because no, I, no, I you no, know no, I, I love my sport and yeah. I'd never I never hate anyone for sport. Yeah, you yeah. just got that dislike at the end of the day yeah. and um. Well, but you the, know, yeah, you, you want to be you want the, I, I mean, I know, Liverpool supporters. You, you guys will still want the derby at the end of the day. you, you don't want to miss out on that derby.
1: No, you don't. And I say that you've got to have those things, but that's what New Zealand sport lacks now. We don't have that tribalism. We don't have that angst, and we need the angst. You need the narratives. You need the rivalries. You know, for sport. You've got to have your villains. You've got to have your heroes. That's what we want. That's what we, That brings the level of engagement. And, uh, you know, the Merseyside Derby is one of the great occasions. The North London Derby we had over the weekend, one of the great occasions. The Manchester Derbies. That's what sports, that's what football's all about. And it won't be the same. And I do hope Everton can stay up, Scott. Hey, lovely to have you on the programme. Thank you. Greatly appreciated for the call. And thank you for waiting nine minutes away from one o'clock. You're listening to SENZ. <laughs>
3: stuff in there, there need to be a bite almost, Holyfield is very unhappy, look at this, it looked as if Tyson bared his teeth at one stage in the exchange, Yes, bit I his ear, he, he bit his ear, that's what, Holyfield was in a lot of pain
7: from that, you see the blood on the ear, that was definitely a bite,
3: well feelings are running very
4: raged by that
5: now let's take a look again because it's, it's just
8: here he gets into the position there watch you see he steers there there he bites him there you see him lift his teeth
7: and holyfield in agony at that point trying to rip free in a, an awful lot of pain.
1: yeah famous moment there mike tyson biting the Era of Vanderhollifeld, didn't despite it, took a chunk out of it. But it's funny, because of those rogue moments, they became iconic moments. You go back and you look at McEnroe and some of the dummy spits that he had. Um, you go back, you look at Ben Johnson in the 100 metres of 1988, arguably the unlucky one to get caught. But they are iconic moments. They're famous moments in history, aren't they? And so without the rogues, Maybe the world doesn't go around. Maybe the world's not quite as interesting. Unless, of course, you're on the other side of it. And clearly there is a line. I don't mean interesting in terms of murdering people, as in the case of Oscar Vistorius. Um, this is a nice text, and this is, I think, probably sums it up. A list confuses villain athletes who you love to hate, but will play at the entry gate to see, and people who are poor human beings because of the bad choices they made. Yeah. So I think you've got. I think that's right. There are those sporting villains and then there are those genuine people who I think you have every reason to dislike, not to watch, and ways have a black mark next to their name for the poor choices they have made in life. Uh, Paul saying, (laughs) Mitchell Johnson uh, was a proper end as well. (laughs) Uh, That comes from Paul. Um, Okay, one of our own, Zach Guilford. Zach Guilford, flawed genius. Um, clearly, yeah, got a few ghosts there, a few skeletons in the closet. I think this is a really good one, one of the great villains, but part of the reason I think the America's Cup became so popular here, and I talk about it, to have heroes, you've got to have villains, and of course the great Dennis Connor, a villain who became a likeable rogue, who became an elder statesman. And isn't it that way? It's a bit like when you break up in a long-term relationship, it goes from, you sort of go from hate sort of forgiveness to friends to eventually reflecting on the good times is that what happens with athletes we hate them then they sort of become the lovable rogues in a funny strange kind of way later on we almost sort of miss them we miss the colour, we miss the personality, we miss the rivalry that they did bring we're going to talk some tennis after 1 o'clock, Drew Lilly at the Australian Tennis Open new sporting weather up next Uh, Novak Djokovic's first appearance on Laver Arena in some time, of course, being prevented from playing in the Australian Open last year due to vaccine requirements. I sort of sense he's endearing himself with the Australian public. In his speech after that victory over his Spanish opponent said, look, if there's one tennis court anywhere in the world that I feel most comfortable on, that I love playing on, it's the centre court here at Rod Laver Arena. Big games to look forward to today. British tennis player Radakanu takes on ASB Classic winner Coco Goff. thought it's about time that we got a bit of an update from the Australian Tennis Open. My next guest on the programme is a wonderful commentator. I've been privileged enough to work with him previously at the Tokyo Olympic Games. He's part of the commentary team for the Australian Open. His name is Drew Lilly. He joins us. Afternoon to you, Drew. Welcome. Hi, Mark. How are you? Very good, thank you. Now, your first guest game I think that you called was on Monday featuring Auckland's own slash Great Britain's own Cameron Norrie.
3: <laughs> slash Johannesburg's own, yes, he's a, he's a citizen of the world. Yes, yes, and Cameron Norrie, he looked a bit out of sorts. He was playing a young lad called Luca Von Asch uh, who won the French Open Juniors uh, last year. Only 18 years old, and Cam Norrie, now on the outskirts of the top 10, uh, had such a great run at the United Cup when he beat the likes of Taylor Fritz, Rafael Nadal, um, Alex Dimonor, and then had a great run in Auckland and got it all the way up to the final and looked like he was going to get that one over the line, and then suddenly seemed to have some sort of block uh, towards the end against Richard Gasquet, and I think he might have had a little bit too much. Usually, it's the Australian and New Zealand summer of tennis, and you like to peak at about the right time. He seems to have peaked a little bit too early, and he looked like he needed a rest. He was really out of sorts against someone who's got a similar playing style to him, and he struggled through. He got through in three sets, but it really wasn't his best tennis and you could tell the fact that he was still playing in Auckland on the Saturday would have flown over on the Sunday and the poor guy had to play in Melbourne on the Monday so the good thing for him now though is that he got his first round match out of the way when the weather was nice Tuesday we had the heat rule in play it was absolutely stinking hot in the afternoon and they decided that there was no play on the outside courts as soon as we got back on there Obviously, been that hot, it meant that the storm was brewing and then the heavens opened. All sorts of matches moved around here, there, and everywhere. So the good thing for Norrie is he's got his first match out of the way and he can rest. While today there's a hugely busy schedule. I'm looking out of the window. Play hasn't started yet because it's, it's 11 o'clock here. They're going to start on the show courts that have got roofs. But the outside courts, there's no way they can play for another hour or so because there's a, a lot of drizzle and the courts are wet. So it's actually good for Norrie that A, he's got through and B, he can have a rest for a day or two.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because in his next round, he'll take on Constant Lestien who actually made the semi-finals at the ASB Classic and then withdrew. Um, he was supposed to take on Richard Gasquet and now there was a lot of criticism because people felt that here he was on the cusp of winning his first ATP title. But no, I want to rest up I want to go to the Australian Open. Not many people have given Lestian any real chance of getting past Norrie in this. Um, and a lot of people felt that he had done the wrong thing. Do you know much about Lestian and what can Cameron Norrie expect from him?
3: It, it's strange because you think, you you come across these players every so often and you think, I haven't heard of him before. He He must be an up-and-coming youngster like the guy that, Cam Norrie played in the first round, Luca Von Asch, and then you think, well hang on, no he isn't, he was born in, the, the guy's 30 years old, he's just never really uh, managed to to make his breakthrough and then he worked really hard in the end of 2021 and then in particular 2022 obviously lots of people struggled during the the pandemic where can you play, who can you train with that kind of thing and he's never really been part of the the French setup. up. The French will pick players early on, very early on, like Gasquet. Gasquet was picked as a, a 12-year-old and put on the front of sports magazine saying he's the one who's going to be the, finally he's going to break our duck in terms of men winning a Grand Slam. And that duck is still going on. They haven't won one since the French Open 1983 in Yannick Noah. And so the weight of expectation could be on certain people like Luca Von Asch, whom Norrie played in the first round. And then you've got Tien, uh who's just gone under the radar, but he did it the hard way, playing a lot of challenges uh, in and around Europe in 2022. And you don't pick up a huge amount of points, but if you get, if you can get to finals, you can win them, you get 40 points here, 40 points there, and you can drag your way up in the rankings. And he's currently just outside the top 60, which is pretty much as, as high as he's ever been. Um, uh, the fact that he pulled out there in the semis over in Auckland, I think, is a pretty poor look because he, he hasn't—he's not someone who's had a huge amount of success and can afford to say, "Oh, you know what? I'm concentrating on the Australian Open." Uh, and so, hopefully, Cam Norrie's going to put him in his place when they do play in the second round and say, <laughs> you know, "There's people who would give their IT to be in the position you're in." So, don't pull out of a. Uh, a high profile semi final when you've got the opportunity.
1: Last night, another thrilling five setup featuring 35 year old Andy Murray gets up over 13 seed Italian Matteo Berentini in another wonderful performance, another wonderful um, advertisement for tennis.
3: It was absolutely amazing, and it was, I think a lot of us have been thinking, can Andy Murray ever really roll back the years? And since his hip surgery, he hadn't won many matches at Grand Slams. I think he'd only won eight of them, and he hadn't beaten anyone, I don't think he'd beaten anyone in the top 20 in the best part of five or six years. And yesterday, it helped him, the fact that... It was so hot that they closed the roof on uh, the show court that he was on. Thank goodness we've got three show courts with roofs here so we can carry on playing. I say thank goodness. I was actually commentating up until 2 in the morning on one of them. So uh, it's swings and roundabouts. But for Murray, it meant that he was playing in indoor conditions, which meant the ball wasn't quite going to fly through the air as quickly as it would. Uh, and that meant that Berrettini's big service wasn't quite the weapon it would be. And he caught Berrettini cold for a couple of uh, couple of sets, took a two-set-to-love lead, when Berrettini was still adapting to the conditions. And it's not that difficult to adapt, but Berrettini himself said, it's my own fault. Mentally, I wasn't there, and I was a bit troubled by the fact that the roof was closed. But it's my own fault. I should have just brushed that to one side and carried on. Berrettini then came back, and we got into a final set. And then it was genuine toe-to-toe to really good players, two Grand Slam finalists in the case of Berrettini, winner in the case of Murray, going toe-to-toe. Berrettini had a match point at 5-4, I think it was, and fluffed the kind of backhand that you or I would have put away, Mark. It was as simple as that, and he's going to regret that for quite some time. But credit to Murray, it wasn't Berrettini losing it, it was him winning it, digging incredibly deep, and rolling back the years... It's a cliche, and people have wanted him to roll back the years for the last four or five years. The guy's playing on a metal hip, for heaven's sake. And you think, well, there's no way he can really peak again. He's, he's going to have a few wins here or there, but nothing too flashy. This was a flashy win. This was a genuine knocking out one of the contenders in the first round. It was an awful draw for both of them. Murray's got through, and now Murray can have a bit of a run, I'd say at least for the second week.
1: Yeah, we saw uh, Nojak, Novak Djokovic get up, beating a Spanish opponent in straight sets, Rod Laver Arena. Is is it fair to say that he is slowly endearing himself to the Australian public and the wider tennis public? I mean, very much in the Federer Nadal era, you can't have three heroes. You can probably have two and a villain, and he's always sort of had that villain. He's always had that sort of villain tag.
3: You've always got to pick a villain. Uh, yes, particularly, usually there's a hero and a villain. And then if you've got the right-handed hero, the left-handed hero, uh, you've definitely got to have a villain. And then you've got the, the smooth, suave Roger Federer. Uh, then you've got Rafael Nadal, who's a bit more quirky, uh, doesn't express himself quite as well, speaks with quite a pronounced accent, but still speaks wonderful English, but not in a Federer kind of way. So you've got two people that you can really go for Um, two different types of heroes. So you you really didn't need a villain. And for for a number of years, it was Djokovic. And then obviously what happened this time last year with his entry into Australia and then subsequent uh, deportation. I think he's done things very cleverly this time around. So rather than coming into Sydney or Melbourne to begin with, he crept in almost by the the back door uh, via... Adelaide, and I'm going to get in trouble with my in-laws who are from Adelaide there, but it, it, it's, it is it's sort of creeping in the back door uh, and where you won't get such a harsh reception and you can pass under the radar. So he did that, played in Adelaide, played well, and then it was a big test yesterday coming out, but the crowd were very warm to him because they know he's an absolutely wonderful player, and let's be honest, he's won here nine times. And you're going to indeed yourself to the crowd over the decades if you're that good a player. And the tournament identifies with him. He identifies with the tournament. And the crowd were very warm to him yesterday on Rod Labour Arena. And then by the time he really hit his straps, third hmm. set, I think he only dropped about four or five points. He was absolutely untouchable. I know it's very early going. He got huge strapping on his and had a little bit of a twinge or two when he was playing in Adelaide against Medvedev, most notably, and saying he got hamstring problems. But he's played through injuries before. He used to withdraw quite often when it was he was younger, 15 years ago, at the start of his career. And that didn't give him a good reputation compared with Federer and Nadal. But he's he's got a lot more solid physically, too, and that's a real understatement. And he's looked as good as anyone over the first two days.
1: Yeah, look, I think he did a great job PR-wise too, playing that exhibition um, alongside of Nick Kyrgios on the Friday night prior to the tournament kicking off, where he showed his colourful, he showed his humorous side, and he almost humanised himself.
3: That's right, yes, it was a very, very clever thing to do, uh, uh, get yourself on the side of Australia's poster boy and the the fact that Kyrgios has said uh, ever since Wimbledon last year when they met in the final it's I like Novak I supported him this time last year when there was the deportation saga Um, and so we've been mates since then and we'll go out to dinner at some point I don't know whether they will Uh, big talk easy to say but uh, it it was a clever thing for Djokovic to do Uh, and so it was the the global poster boy for the tournament, who's won it nine times, and then the Australian poster boy. And unfortunately, they're having to take his his face off the posters now with Kyrgios having withdrawn.
1: Mm. Tennis commentator Drew Lilly is my guest. You're listening to SENZ. Okay, looking forward to the big matches today, I guess on the women's side, uh, US Open winner, former US Open winner, Ebba Emma Raducanu of Great Britain taking on Coco Goff, who was a finalist at the French Open. Coco Goff endeared herself to the New Zealand public as she won the ASB Women's Classic. How do you see this one going?
3: It's going to be very tough for Emma Raducanu. Coco Goff, an absolutely wonderful player. I think she may have played a little bit too much tennis Last year, she was playing on all fronts. She was playing singles, doubles, which also endears her to the public and to the the real tennis aficionados who like to see people playing doubles as well. And she was playing in the World Tour Finals, singles and doubles, tried to get over for the Billie Jean King Cup uh, Finals as well. So she was going from the USA over to Europe. She was with, I don't know, about 12 hours off uh, after a, a transatlantic flight. She was exhausted towards the end. And she really needed to take some time off and work on her forehand. Uh, it's, It's the weakest part of her game. And it's obviously a very important part of your game. And she reckons she's worked on that and has done the necessary. And it's going to be a real test for her up against Emma Raducanu. Uh, Goff looked brilliant in the first round, beating Katerina Siniakova, who is a very good player. Radikanu did well uh, as well against uh, Tamara Korpach of Germany, who maybe is a name that won't be that familiar to people, but she's a big hitter who can trouble players. So it was two. Uh, well, it was a, a U.S. Open winner and then a U.S. Open or a, a Grand Slam finalist coming up against one another. They're coming up against one another in the second round. It's almost unfair. Uh, my pick would be Coco Goth because I don't think Emma Raducanu is quite settled yet with a new coaching setup. She's gone through various different coaches uh, Dimitri Tausonoff, the former player, was with her last year, and he moved away from her, saying that she needs, she's got too many voices going on, she's got too many different coaches, um, both the the actual coach and then the strength and conditioning physios. Uh, she needs to get a, a settled team with her radikanu and she reckons she's got that now. It's probably a little bit early for her uh, yeah, if she been coming up against someone other than Coco Goff in the second round, I'd have uh, backed her to work her way into the tournament, uh, get into the second week, and by which time if she settled? She could probably get past anyone. Uh, but there's still a huge weight of expectation on her shoulders. Back in the UK, there are people writing about her in the, in the broadsheets, the daily newspapers, every day. It's right. One of you's writing on Murray, and the other one's writing on radikani and if radikanu loses, which she's done a fair bit of, which you always do in tennis, you tend to lose more than you win until you're really in the top echelons. Then she's permanently got this almost negative press. Why hasn't she lived up to the billing uh, of the being the 2021 U.S. Open winner? Huge pressure on, on, a, on a teenager. Uh, and she's trying to handle it in the best way possible. I think she's... Going to have a good season, but coming up against Coco Golf this early, uh, I think that's going to be a bridge too far.
1: Okay, Drew. In tonight or in the days coming, what are the big matchups that people are look, looking forward to? What are the ones that are creating the most most discussion?
3: Uh, the Aussies, obviously, they've got no Nick Kyrgios to watch, and even uh, well, it's it's. A real shame for Australia and that Ash Barty's retired. Nick Kyrgios has pulled out with the fist that he's got on his knee, which um, I know from experience that's a very painful thing to have and it's very difficult to play through. So that's fair enough. And then Isla Tomjanovic pulling out as well. So the Aussies have got various people to uh, throw their Uh, Support behind, I was commentating on the Alexei Popperin match last night, which went five sets and he got through. That was on John Kane Arena, which is a really good atmosphere under the roof. Uh, Alex Dimonor played beforehand as well. So all the hope now is being transferred onto Dimonor. But it's probably, looking around, it's maybe time to focus on the Americans. The Americans uh, on the men's side probably haven't had such a good time of it since the 90s and maybe early 2000s. They seem to be coming into their own. And a lot of people's picks for the tournament will be uh, American, Taylor Fritz for the men, and then Jessica Pagula for the women. Pagula in particular, she beat Iga Sviatek, the world number one and very much undisputed world number one beat her at the United Cup, and Sviatek left the court in tears. She's someone who wears a heart on a sleeve, very emotional, uh, but Pagula beat her fair and square. And there are times when Sviatek looks absolutely untouchable, be it on hard courts or on clay where she's won Roland Garros uh, a couple of times. She's still very young, and you think, well, this woman's going to be untouchable for a decade and Pagula has really raised her game, and she seems to be rounding into form just at the right time. Uh, They're in the same half of the draw as well, so it's very much a a loaded top half of the draw, but Spiatek, Jessica Pagula, Coco Goss in that half of the draw as well, Daniel Collins, another American who made the final last year, and even Bianca Andreescu, uh, another Grand Slam winner uh, who's had her own... uh, problems and been off court for quite some time, the Canadian. So that's a loaded top half of the draw on the women's. Then on the men's side, uh, Taylor Fritz made, him, made his way into the top 10. He's been a great play with all the weapons for quite some time, but he just needed, again, to get himself settled. And people have asked me before, who's the new generation? Who are the young players who are going to come through? And to me, it's not the young players. It's players who are not necessarily that young. But have been playing for a while, and then settle into their game, settle into it mentally, because tennis is such a mental game. Matteo Berrettini is going to be thinking about that match point against that he had against Murray for days, weeks to come. He's going to be—you've got to be able to put that behind you as quickly as possible and learn to deal with defeat, learn to deal with the, pre- the pressures of the media and what happens off court as we were talking about with Emma Radicanu. And I think Taylor Fritz has got his head sorted out quite nicely. He's making his way into the top ten. He had another good United Cup run as well when the uh, United States won. He, again, is in a tough part of the draw. Um, should be Kasper Ruz, uh at some point, Djokovic in the semis, I think. Uh, but he's he, to me, is the main challenger to Novak Djokovic in this draw.
1: Drew Lilly, absolute privilege and a pleasure, mate. Wonderful insight. Thank you for taking the time and out of your busy schedule and joining us here on SENZ.
3: My absolute pleasure, Mark. Anytime, you know that.
1: Brilliant. Great man, Drew Lilly, one of the great commentators, an absolute scholar and a gentleman talking all things the Australian Open. It is 24 minutes after one. You're listening to SENZ. Telephone numbers 0800 150 811. You can text us here on double eight double three on the temper bedpost text machine.
4: You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line. Chalk flew up. It was clearly in. How can you possibly
1: call that out? How many you can miss? He's walking over, everyone knows it's in in this whole stadium, and you call it out? Explain that to me,
0: will you?
4: Mm The linesman called a fault because the ball was on this side of the court. The and, chalk it, came on, and it doesn't the, matter. No, no, the, the very fact that there is a spread of chalk, as
9: you can see, Mr. McEnroe.
1: The great John McEnroe became one of the great villains, didn't he, of international sport, particularly in the 1980s? But I'd argue tennis was more popular and was better for McEnroe. The colour and the personality of Jimmy Connors, the temperament and times of Nastasi maybe the accuracy of the Ivan Lendels and the brilliance of the likes of Vitas Gerolitis. And the reason we bring it up, if you have just joined the programme or you've tuned in from the South Island after one o'clock to this particular show, is we've decided to sort of look at the most hated athletes. And part of the reason we did that is because of Nick Kyrgios. He's got this sort of fly-on-the-wall documentary that's come out on Netflix, and the Herald Sun in Australia have listed their top five most hated athletes of the decade. And we sort of scratched your head a little bit here because they've got Oscar Pistorius at one. Everybody gets that. Guy murdered his girlfriend. They've got Nick Herrios at two. Aaron Hernandez, American football player who was found guilty of murder, ended up taking his own life. There's a lot of discussion that... Um, He might have gone a little bit AWOL because of a lot of concussions over the years. They've got David Warner of the Australian cricket team. Sun Yang, Chinese distance swimmer. Drug cheat Alex Rodriguez, American baseball player. And Luis Suarez, footballer. And so we want you to tell us who are the great villains, but which athletes do you genuinely hate? And I think there is a difference. Hate is because athletes have made just really poor life decisions. Villains, because we love to hate them. Which pretty much sums up, I think, the majority of the Australian cricket team over the years. You know, they've always been the villains, haven't they? They maybe haven't always acted with the highest level of integrity or sportsmanship. Well, that's certainly the way we perceive it. But I'm trying to work out what is there to hate about Nick Kyrgios. Nick Kyrgios only damages Nick Kyrgios and his legacy with his behaviour. But he sells out an exhibition against Nojak Djokovic in 59 minutes. He is hugely popular. He's the hottest ticket in any tennis tournament because people love a train wreck. So who are some of the great villains? Mike Tyson, clearly. Mike Tyson went to jail for rape. Yet people sort of still want to put an arm around Mike because of the absolutely horrific upbringing that he had. And as Mike Tyson said, as hard as I worked to earn my money, there were people out there working twice as hard to take it from me. People seem to have looked past Lance Armstrong, but Lance Armstrong was a great fraudster. I mean, he deceived other people out of money, prevented other people's legacies. But we brush it aside because he's American. We brush it aside because everybody was doing it. Well, apparently everybody was doing it. O eight hundred-one five oh eight double one is the number. Text us here on double eight double three. Who are the most hated athletes in history? And who are the great villains? And I think there is a definitive difference between villain and hate. 800 texas 8833 on the Timber Beard Post text machine. I think words were obviously said, weren't they? Obviously, Matt said something... There it remember, is! Yeah. Oh, you
3: can't excuse that! Zidane's career ends
4: in disgrace.
3: You can't boo the referee. The fourth man to be sent off in a World Cup final. Two Argentines in 1990 and Desai of all people in 98. And Zidane goes...
5: France will play the remainder of ten men. Well there is no doubt that Matarazzi said something.
1: Martin Moxon, I think, is the British commentator, Zinazine Zidane getting sent off in a World Cup final back in two thousand and six. Went from zero to hero, or did he? Loved by the French. It was in fact 2002, wasn't it? Because they won it in 98, lost it in 2000. No, was it 2006?
2: That incident? Yeah. 2006, the yeah. Dan's final game.
1: No, I was living in France at the time, actually. Southern France running a triathlon program. I remember watching it. Had a few too many to drink, to be honest. I'm Not a big drink. It was the one night in a decade where for some reason, I reckon someone spiked it. Can I say someone spiked it? Or it might have been the fact that I'd ridden and had a really big training day and I was just so dehydrated that I could have got a little bit tipsy just Probably on orange juice, fermented orange juice, perhaps. Poisoned, or were they trying to help you out?
2: Were you? Did you become a villain?
1: I might have become a villain.
2: You got uh, you got juice, but not
1: that kind of juice. What? Fear, fair to say. No, Have never, never, gone, never gone down the dark side, never gone down the dark side. Uh, but see, that has been very much the theme today just because of the Nick Kyrgios situation. Why is it people love to hate him? Why is he considered hated? I wouldn't call him hated. I think he's a villain. I think he's great for sport. And we've been saying sport, and that's the problem in this country, and I did a little bit of a parody between 12 and 1 where you go and interview a sports person in this country and you know, go and get your rugby player and you grab them at half time and it's just that same cliched rubbish, isn't it? You know, it's like... Oh yeah, look, you know, um we we just moved a little bit away from our structure. Uh coach has spoken about it at halftime. You know, I thought we came together and um yeah, kicked a little bit better and you know, full credit needs to go to the forwards. They really did step up. And then the other captain comes out and says, "Yeah, you know, we um played a really good first half and we just lost our way in the second half and their forwards really stepped up." And that's about all you get out of them. And there's just no colour anymore. There's no personality. There's no narratives. You need the Mourinho's in football. You need the well-spoken Jurgen Klopp's. You need the characters. And a small group of people who love to tell everyone else how to live their lives misconstrue character with villain, and then try and morally police us that their personalities and the colour they bring to sport is actually not acceptable. And often these morons running the sport listen to them, forgetting, in fact, the minority is the silent majority. Mike's saying, Troy Flavel for rugby. Watto as a villain. I had to adjust the contrast on my TV every time he came on into shot. I see Troy Flavel out at Mirawai, but does surf a lot. Nice guy. Someone also texting in saying Andre the Giant. Paul Gallen, yeah, I think Paul Gallen, in my opinion, I think you could probably classify him as a little bit of a grub. George Gregan, um, villain because of the famous Jeff Wilson trial, the famous line, four more years, boys, four more years. Lucky enough to work up in Fiji some years ago uh, on a sevens tournament, spent an entire week with George Gregan, did some commentary with him, lovely, lovely guy. And he said, actually, he's more well-known for the four more years line than the Jeff Wilson tackle. Byron Callagher was the halfback. But there's been some great villains in sport. But I want to know who are the most hated athletes, like genuine hate that you have zero time for, for whether it's something they did during their playing career, during their sports career, or something they did off the field which was unacceptable. I can understand why Oscar Pistorius is on that list. Aaron Hernandez, I can understand why he is on that list. I can understand why people might put Mike Tyson legitimately on that list. We had the recent US gymnastics coach who's been found guilty of sexual assault on minors. Absolute creep can go onto the hated list. I know if you live in Canterbury, the village of the damned, Carlos Spencer would be on the most hated list. Yet in Auckland, we build statues of the man. There was a time here in Canterbury where I imagine John Hart was one of the most hated people. Mark Carter. Yet up here in Auckland, we didn't particularly endear ourselves to the likes of Todd Blackadder or Reuben Thorne. Ironically, though, rugby was in a good space because we had that level of tribalism. It no longer exists. I love this one because I have to agree with this one. Daryl Here, cricket umpire. Dreadful umpire. Dreadful umpire. Terrible umpire. When Daryl here was in charge, you knew we were gone, you knew we weren't gonna win. Well said, that man. Who was the umpire that was in charge of the boxing day test 86 87? You know, when Hadley going full steam at one end, Danny Morrison at the other, LBW's not been given out. I think it's a true story. Alan Border was never given out LBW in Australia. And so I think historically here in New Zealand, we can classify the whole history of Australian cricket is villainous. And the king of it at the moment, David Warner, Steve Smith. It's almost inherent, isn't it? Passed from one team, one generation to the next. 17 minutes away from two, jump on the phone, give us a call, let us know. Akira Enrico Awani, Brendan's texting in. I've got to say that and dear themselves particularly to me. Akira Not a big fan of Rico, I don't mind, but he's a winger, not a centre. And that's why we'll lose the World Cup, because we're playing him out of position. Every time the All Blacks play someone out of position, we lose. Best winger in the world, average centre. We only remember the good things he does. We don't look holistically at the defence and the lack of ability to feed his outside backs. You're listening to SENZ. Hate? Close? Yep. Um, Actually, probably Greg Chappell for ordering the underarm incident, Trevor Chappell for bowling it. But it became almost that line, that straw that broke the camel back. I think part of the great rivalry that exists between Australia and New Zealand and why we love beating the Australians so much still goes back to the underarm incident. And I'll keep saying it, you've got to have villains. It's actually good. I love the rivalry we have with Australia. I love the tongue-in-cheek. Like, I I come on the station, we've got a New Zealand audience, we're owned by Australians, but I'm not afraid to have a crack at the Aussies. You'll hear me talk about Australians. Does it really surprise you with their behaviour? You know, they've made Dead Kelly the national hero. They've made Chopper the a national hero. It's sort of in their DNA. And Now, I say it with a bit of tongue-in-cheek. I I say it with a bit of, you know, that banter that you would get between New Zealand and Australian fans, and it's a good thing. Um, I tell you what, when you travel overseas... And you're over there with Aussies. Hey, you come together, man. It's Australia New Zealand versus the rest of the world. And we're actually really, really good mates. And we can have a bit of a laugh about it. Uh, George Gregan, tackle on Jeff Wilson to retain the Bledisloe Cup. George Gregan, four more years, boys. Has there ever been a better call? No. Brutal. One of the great sledges. And they reckon sledging, it's not about profanity. Sledging's about subtlety. It's about intelligence. It's about intellect. And it's about timing. Uh, Carolyn love this text because I've a big, big one on this. Hi, Watto. Lance Armstrong because he was a recidivist liar and cheat, and tried to bring down people who tried to expose him. I don't know why people have a problem with why people have a problem with David Warner. He's worked very hard physically to get into shape, and he's a real scrapper at the crease. His record speaks for itself. Love the show. You're going to become a permanent fixture. Is he in Question mark. Uh, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> What's the definition of permanent, Carolyn? Not sure, but I appreciate the um, appreciate the sentiment, Carolyn. Yeah, look, David Warner, if he was part of the New Zealand team, we would love him, wouldn't we? I mean, who have been our lovable rogues? Have we had any lovable rogues in cricket? John Braceville, back in his day, had a bit of an edge as a spin bowler. I'm just thinking, if we had any real little nigglers? Dion Nash had a bit of a streak to him, didn't he, at times? I think Brendan McCullum endeared himself widely with the New Zealand public more because of the style and what he played but have we had any sort of guys who would have been defined by other countries as bad sports as not gracious in defeat I'm just trying to think are we too nice as a sporting nation yeah the Lance Armstrong one is an interesting one isn't it because what annoys me with professional sport and I'll get Kieran's opinion on this too what annoys me and Niv I love you too Niv are you there, Niv? Wave to me, Niv. Come on, come on here, Niv. You're a Liverpool man, you're an attractive man in a platonic way.
9: <laughs> Thanks, Mark.
1: Yeah, there you go. What can I help you out? What no, I just wanted to with... hear your voice, mate. You should do love songs to midnight. It's quite sexy. Is it? It is. <sighs> in a platonic way. <laughs> anyway, oh, no, it's just saying, um, drugs and sport, what, what annoys me, isn't it? These got, This is a profession for them. They pay tax, they earn an income. Now, if you defraud somebody in banking or you cheat somebody out of money as a bank or a real estate agent, you can go in front of a judge and there's a good chance you're going to go to jail or you're going to end up getting a criminal record in professional sport, if you take drugs which is fraud, you're defrauding people out of winnings, you're cheating them out of money you're cheating them out of legacy you go in front of your own kangaroo court you get a two year ban, a slap on the wrist, you still get to keep your money, still get to keep your house, you still get to keep your car how does that work? I've, I really How don't How does that know? work? There's two judicial systems. Those for professional athletes who come under their own jurisdiction and the rest of us. Uh, what if for
2: me do you do you like to hold the bodies accountable as well cuz as much as you can hold the individual you have to ask questions like with with the uh with Sandpapergate, You know, everyone's putting it on Warner and Smith and coach at the time who stepped down entering the Justin Langer era. It's I feel oh, like both uh, yeah, and mate, I, I, I take that point that there is it's a, quite a strange one how they you almost feel like they get the benefit of the doubt in the in the real world, mate, because drugs are illegal. Drug cheats can't oh, go to jail. You, mate, you get but. hung
1: in jail, you get hung in Singapore for tracking tracking drugs. But if I'm racing you and there's a hundred thousand dollars up for grabs and I'm clean and you're not, and you win the hundred thousand dollars and I win twenty five thousand for second, you've just taken seventy five thousand dollars off me. If I walked into a bank or walked in your house, stole mm. seventy five you get ten years in jail. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, the, and that's the
4: that's bottom line. Yeah, the and lack that's of, how
1: you sort it out. You criminalise it.
4: Yeah, it's the lack of punishment that almost validates the behaviour. It almost incentivises you to well, do it, to well, win. Well, in America, you
1: don't even need to be the pull, pull the trigger. You're just along for the ride. You will get convicted for murder as well. Now, if you're the doctor providing the drugs, you also get jailed. You're complicit. We'll continue the discussion. Keep your text coming on the temper, be, temper bedpost text machine, double eight double three. And we are going to talk surfing after two o'clock with our new men's national surfing champion. June Kennings, New Zealand's latest New Zealand surfing champion on the program after two o'clock. A Piha local upset, the great Billy Stearman, Elliot Pirata Reid. His father won it twice in the early 1990s, father-son combination. He's a builder. I spoke to him earlier today. I said, June, I want to get you on. I want to promote the sport. I want to find out a little bit about you. He says, yeah, no worries, mate. I'm a builder. I'm just building a new veranda or a new um, deck on the Muirawai Surf Club out there. And I thought, quintessential New Zealand. Yeah, no worries, Mark. I'll just have my phone next to me. You know what the beautiful thing about it? I didn't have to go through a media prevention officer. I didn't have to deal with rugby. I didn't have to try and get a player put forward. These guys are just So easy to talk to, and let's be honest, man. You're New Zealand surfing champion, you are one cool cat, aren't you? You are one of the coolest people in the country. Imagine going into the Olympics and you bump into some athletes from different sports. Oh, what are you here for? I'm here for synchronized swimming, I'm here for equestrian. What are you here for? I'm here for surfing. It's like you own the village, don't you, man? You own the village. You are the coolest, you are the loosest, you are the envy of everybody. We'll talk surfing after two. of the great rock anthems isn't it guns and roses been with me since 1988 a lot of long bike rides a lot of long time at the beach flew to wellington last year to go and see the boys again and remember being there the 19th of december 1988 at the big top busy straddling just the boys in their black leathers they've been good to me over the years gotta say i've become a little bit more eclectic in my mix these days enjoy a little bit of the old pearl jam and my sound garden but i've got to say occasionally i'll sit back and listen to a little bit of rod stewart at times as well we're going to do something really cool now we're going to talk to one of the coolest cats in the country because if you're the new zealand men's surfing champion you are just cool. because is there a cooler sport than surfing i live out at muriwai and i don't think there is i mean skiing's pretty cool but surfing man if wants to be a surfer as I said, I guarantee Billy Stearman was the coolest kid at the Olympic Games amongst the New Zealand team. We had the New Zealand Surfing Championships last week staged out at Piha. A lot of people were talking about Billy Stearman looking to try and win his ninth national title. It came down to four in the finish, Kalani Luka, Billy Stearman, and two locals, Elliot Pirata reed and Dune Kennings. And it was Dune Kennings who ended up taking out the national crown. He's a builder, he lives out at PH, he joins us on the programme. June, good afternoon, welcome. Yeah, hey mate, how's it going? Yeah, very good, thank you. Are you a cool cat? Oh, I'd hope to think so. Yeah. <laughs> what are your music choices?
8: Um, to be honest, I listen to a bit of everything, um, but I do like a bit of house
1: music. Oh, do you? Really?
8: Yeah, I'm into my house and on... I just I mix it up. I don't know stay in one genre. I kind of
1: always uh, mix it up. Yeah. Uh, June, now you're based out at Pihar. Um, You live out there. Did that give you a bit of an advantage, knowing that the National Champs were going to be staged there this year?
8: Yeah, I think definitely. Um, I'm always spending so much time in the water, and I have done since I was a kid, and uh, I know those waves so well. That's how the final went. I just sat out there, and I, I waited for the two best waves, and I I performed on them and it just kind of all happened and it was kind of my day and I'm actually so happy.
1: Yeah, because you had another P H local, Elliot Pirata Reed, who ended up finishing second. Do you spend a lot of time together or does that rivalry mean that you can't necessarily be friends?
8: No, we've always been such and rivals and we're actually best mates at the same time. So to have a final against him and for us to put those scores on the board and um, compete against each other and show our friendship off like that was just incredible um, we were just laughing in the water like having fun and uh, I think it really showed in our performances
1: When you started the Nationals last week 61 entries what were realistically your expectations? Did you believe you could win this?
8: I definitely had high hopes and I backed my skill level and I was feeling confident so yeah, I was feeling like I could definitely be in the top four. Um, and then when I made the final, I, I felt like I was my goal and there was no pressure and I just wanted to go out there and have fun. And that's what I did. I just got the good waves and um, it was my day, so I'm just over the moon.
1: Now, your father won the National Surf Championships in 1990 and he won in Pihara in 1991. Um, what did Dad make of it all like father, like son, or do you get your talent from your mum?
8: Nah, dad, dad definitely was telling me he's like you need to get this national title, so we can say that we're the first uh, father-son son combo to do it. And um, so yeah, I think that goes down in history, and you yeah, couldn't be more proud, eh? To not only represent our family name, but um, to do him proud as well.
1: Yeah, it's a it's well-known name in surfing. Ben Kennings, of course, your uncle. We do a lot with Ben based in Whangamata and his kids do well in the sport. And the Kennings name certainly well and truly etched in New Zealand surfing in more recent times and clearly going right back to the 1990s. How much of an influence has your dad been in your surfing career? Oh, he's
8: always had my best, and um, he's always got me to the surf contest when I was younger. Um, when I was about 10 years old, he asked me what I wanted to do. Um, we were living in Auckland at that time and I said I want to be a surfer so we moved uh, to find a car, and we got a beachfront house just a little rental and I just surfed every day and without making that decision I wasn't going to be a surfer
1: and, um, yeah, and is, is, is your father your coach? Do you have a coach?
8: Um, I don't necessarily have a coach I've worked with a lot of people over the years um lately i've just been kind of staying in my own lane and just working on myself um, i'm just training a lot and i just working on my mental game and i i think all the confidence from my training and everything going through this week um, and i'm just actually like i said over the moon i'm still sinking in mate i
1: I believe it. Now good on you and the fact that you're a builder, we spoke earlier today you said you're out building a deck at the PH Surf Club, the fact that you are a builder that you do have outside interests. do you think that's good in terms of your life balance, does that make you a better surfer or ultimately would you just love to chuck it in and spend 10 hours a day in the surf?
8: Well I'd ideally like to be able to just go surfing for sure but I think it creates a hunger and um go to work every day and earn an honest living, um, you know, it adds fuel to my fire and to to bring it out and actually get the win, it makes me kind of back myself a bit more and I think I need to take a bit of a step back and have a little rethink uh, about what this year has been in uh, stock for me because... Now I'm the national <laughs>
1: champ. Yeah, no, very cool. Now, have you spent a lot of time overseas trying to chase, getting onto the world circuit and trying to chase some of these um, surfing tiers just below the world group?
8: Um, I did when I was younger. I used to go to Australia a lot um, and compete over there, in the Grom division, like the under 14, under 12, under 16. And then I've represented New Zealand a few times and South America. Um, but I actually suffered a bad knee injury when I was about 18, so I had a couple of years out of the water and then after that I just kind of got into, um, a trade, I started painting and then started, uh, building after that. Um, so now I need to have, like I said, a rethink and, um, potentially this year I'd like to go overseas and give some contests a crack for sure.
1: Ricardo Christie, um, as I as I mentioned, Billy Stearman uh, clearly very much focused on trying to make the Olympic Games, which will be held in Tahiti as part of the Paris Olympics. Is that now something in the back of your mind? Is that Olympic dream suddenly alive?
9: Yeah,
8: definitely. Like, um, I think I really needed this result to just uh, give me reassurance in myself, and I always. I always knew I could do it, but to uh, do it in the way I did and get the highest score in national final history um, and to have that performance really makes me uh, want to chase it and put myself out there more and really good it in the chat.
1: The two waves that counted, the two waves that you scored big on, did you know they were good waves when you completed them? Did you just think, wow, I think I just nailed that?
8: Yeah, so I think,
1: I caught a wave
9: in the first
8: 30 seconds of the heat, and I think I got like a three. And then I paddle out uh, to the lineup again, and then the other boys get waves, and they all drop big scores. And then I was like, oh, God, it's gone it's going wrong. And then a wave came through, and it was a beauty. I got a uh, 9.25. And then uh, I was actually talking to my friend Elliot. He's like, did you get a nine? Bro? And I was like, yeah. He goes, "Oh right, yeah his next wave he gets a nine and then Billy gets a nine and so I'm sitting out in the back and I'm like okay my next wave has to be a really good one if I want to do this so I actually sat out there for about 10 to 15 minutes and I just waited and waited and all the other boys were catching waves and then I got uh, a 9.9 and once I landed that last turn I knew it was probably one of the best waves I've ever had uh in a in a surf competition and uh yeah, I just stood there, and I—I I might have claimed it a, a little bit, but um, yeah, I then I, was, I was just paddling back up the back, and they, they said the score, and I was over the moon.
1: Yeah, and then you just got there nervous, wait, waiting for the hooter, waiting for the final to come to an end before you get to sort of paddle in and enjoy the celebrations on the beach.
8: Yeah, so actually, um, my friend Elliot came second. He he got a wave uh, in the last couple minutes and he took off did one really big turn, he dropped down did another big turn and then he goes for this big air 360 and he just about landed it and I was thinking no way he's going to get it in the last three minutes mm. um, But he didn't quite land it and then uh, yeah, the score was what the score needed and then uh, the hooter found it and the celebrations began.
1: Did dad have a tear in his eye?
8: Uh, there's a lot of people had tears in their eyes. To be honest, um, I think the whole PR community was pretty stoked to have me uh, take it out. And um, yeah, there's a lot of tears for
1: sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so surfing a lot at PR, what sort of what sort of style of surfer are you? Does that force your style of surfing because of the nature of the power and the waves of the west coast, or are you would you like to think that you're pretty versatile across east coast, west coast, and different types of waves?
8: So, I actually grew up in Pwang when I was uh, till about the age of uh, 18. Um, so, I used to surf on the east coast a lot, so I was quite quick on my feet. Um, and then I moved back to PR when I was about just after 18 and it actually took me a little while to get uh bigger swells and uh surfing bigger waves but after a while i started really clicking in and i felt like because of that i was a more rounded surfer um i'd say my style's quite uh i don't really like to hold back i definitely give up my all and uh if there's a big section on a big wave i'll try i'll try my best to just smash it but um yeah, I don't hold back. That's for sure. Mm.
1: I just want to ask you, how tall are you, and what size board do you surf on?
8: Um, five nine, and I've got about a five eight uh, long surfboard. Yeah, or five ten. Um, if it gets bigger, It just depends on the conditions. If um, you can go smaller, I'll sometimes ride five sevens, or sometimes I could ride a six zero so if the is really up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, disappointing for Billy Stearman. um How how was he after the final? I mean, he's a guy that set the standard for a long time, part of the reason why you guys train so hard.
8: Definitely. Um, Billy is such a good surfer. He's... Um, his achievements are at all, you know. So, um, I think
9: he was just...
8: He was bummed, but I think he was happy for the uh, PR locals to, to bring it home at the local mm. beach, you know. He, he understands and... Uh, You can't win them all, that's for sure.
1: No, uh, surfing is one of those sports you've got to learn how to lose before you learn how to win, because you're going to lose a lot more than you're ever going to win.
8: Definitely. And the ocean is an unpredictable kind of uh, energy, and you could be surfing Mm. the best, but not even catch a wave to show everyone how well you're surfing. So Mm. um, there's a lot of knowledge you need to know, and I think, like you said, uh, living in PA and having that local knowledge really is too. Um,
1: now you're sitting or building a deck out there at the surf club at Pihar what's the conditions like today?
8: Uh, it's quite it's quite nice actually this morning it was like maybe six foot and offshore but the sea breeze has come up um, but there's definitely good waves out there to be honest I haven't been watching it because mm. I've been trying to get this deck done
1: yeah, You don't want to whack your thumb with a <laughs> hammer and do get, you?
8: Nah you kind of you don't want to get uh, two sides that good bollocks in the waves because you just feel like you
1: want to get out there. Yeah, now, I-, I live at Murawai, which is just north of PR. I say West Coast, Best Coast. Do you agree?
8: Yeah, I've had my <laughs> best wave. <laughs>
1: you I'm just sho- shove it into the East Coast boys, eh? West Coast, Best Coast, pretty tribal, isn't it?
8: Yeah,
5: I'm going to go off that.
1: Yeah, good man. Hey, uh, June, lo- lovely to have you on the program, mate. Congratulations <laughs> on winning that National Surf title and well done and joining your father who won it uh, back there in the early 1990s, becoming the first father-son combination to take it out.
8: Yeah, cheers, mate. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it and uh, yeah, hope you have a
1: good day. Oh, yeah, just quickly, if you've got any sponsors, who are they, mate? Just throw it out there.
8: Yeah, so I get my by Hurley. Um, which is a surf brand. Yep. And then uh, Anderson surfboards. Yep. Um, as well as oh, Six Wax. Yep. And then yeah, that's
1: it. No, very cool. Six Wax, Hurley, and sorry, what was the name of your boards? Anderson surfboard. Brilliant. Where are they based? He's, a from, uh, he's a from Natasha. from Oh, brilliant. The Local, eh? fantastic, brilliant, and great credibility for him as well. Hey, lovely to have you on the program. Yep. I'll let you get back to that deck, my good man. Don't fall off it.
8: No, nah,
1: I won't. Okay, we want you surfing all year.
8: Yeah, definitely. That's the plan, mate. Um, I hope you hear my name out there a bit more.
1: No, brilliant. June Kennings, congratulations joining us here on the program here on SENZ. It's 18 and a half minutes after two. Uh, taking your calls on oh eight hundred one five zero eight double one. Is there a cooler sport than surfing? Is that the sport everyone quietly wishes they could do? There's no uncool surfers, are there? Big sport. I live out at Murawai. I'm there a lot of nights. The soft top boards changed the game. Big community now. Everybody is taking up surfing. It's almost like sort of become the new golf. It was cycling for a while, and now it's become surfing. Soft top boards have revolutionised it. A lot wider, a lot fatter. Um, People can get up, people can stand. It's that adrenaline rush. But you've got to be careful, particularly on the West Coast. You do not want to confuse ability with ambition. Trap for young players. But a lot of good surf schools around now Um, There is an etiquette in surfing that you'll find out pretty quickly if you're amongst the best boys on the good wave. Um, But boy, what a healthy lifestyle too. I'm often asked, do you surf, Mike? I said, well, my kids do, but I'll go out there. Um, But no, I'm not a surfer as such. We've got a lot of surfboards at our house though. Um, But I do find it quite medicinal. There is just something nice just to lie out the back on a surfboard or body surf. Uh, But just be smart too. You know, do your homework. YouTube is a great resource these days in terms of just understanding some of the etiquette or maybe learning some technique. Never, ever take your leg rope off if you get yourself into trouble. Always have a flotation device. 20 minutes after two, you're listening to SENZ. You can text us here on the Temper Bedpost text machine on double eight double three. Feel free to sing along, people. I'll sing one, you sing one. This is Live and Let Die, but we should have Heaven's Door. And I think you people know the words. We've got Tracy and Roberta here to help you.
4: Mama, take this badge from me. It
1: is Live and Let oh, Well, I say it was Live and Let Die. It is Heaven's Door. Of course it is. I can't use, use it anymore. Gull fueling your mission all year round. I've got to say, we've got a Gull station in QMU, and it is my default setting when it comes to filling up my car. So I do encourage people if you just want to save some money, you want it to be efficient and effective in some tough economic times, do check out Gull, fueling your mission all year round. Now, we were supposed to do a TAB cross earlier today, but we didn't, um, for some reason, just had a few technical issues. Um, but I, if, if, look, download the TAB app today, bet live on your favourite sports. You can also watch and bet live on your favourite sports and racing at tab.co.nz. The one thing we do say, and we, genuinely say it, please gamble responsibly. You've got to be 18 years of age and over. Okay? Great tune, isn't it? Bob Dylan and then these guys made it their own. One of the great concert anthems because you get to sing along. The live version is stunning. I think it was from a concert in Paris in about 91, 92. You are listening to SENZ anyway. It is telephone numbers 0800 150811. We've um, sort of gone along a little bit of a theme today just on rogues, villains, athletes that we hate. And what defines hate, what defines a villain. Hate, I think, as someone alluded to, is someone that makes seriously dumb decision in their life that actually, you know, like taking somebody's life or... Um, committing a heinous crime villain is probably we love to hate them but if they are playing for us we just simply love them a lot of people saying Steve Smith this text here I hate Steve Smith everything about him the neurotic fidgeting the claiming victimhood every time he's out the punishing social media but most of all that he pretends to be a great guy when he's a self-interested cheating weasel don't hold back Steve David Warner at least owns the fact he's a rogue and doesn't pretend to be better than he is. No, look, Dave, he is what he is, isn't he? Davy Warner. I mean that's just his makeup. Sort of since he comes from the other side of the tracks, he's a little bit more sort of working class, a little bit more blue collar, isn't he? Um but yeah, you've got to have rogues. Gotta have your macros. So who are they? Have we ever had any here in New Zealand? Jesse Ryder, I guess, was a lovable rogue, wasn't he? But was he a cheat? Did he ever, should have, no, never. Have we ever had anyone that's really gone out of their way in cricket and cheated? I mean, we've had a couple of um, people that have been accused of match fixing and, you know, they tried to get Chris Cairns, but it, he wasn't found guilty at all of it, but. And then we, of course, had Lou Vincent, who was banned for life for it. And I feel a little bit for Lou Vincent because I think he was probably easily influenced and I think he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I'm just trying to think, what's our... What's our most scandalous sporting moment, Karen? Can you think of our most scandalous sporting moment? Or are we just a bunch of do-gooders, mate? I think. F- are we just Are we just nice, nice people, and we've never really crossed that line? I mean, you can make a list for the Australians, can't you?
2: Yeah, I think Lou Vincent was the first one that did come to my mind, just because we were on the topic of cricket. There, um, look, I think yeah we've we've had a quite a few over the years that have obviously been debunked, but I think we're in. The grand scheme of things, considering how good we are at sport for being such a small nation,
1: i I think we've stayed quite clear. Yeah, someone mentioned the John Ashworth situation um back there against I think it was was it Gareth Evans? No, not Gareth Evans. Um sorry, um the great Welsh halfback. I'm just trying to think. Someone might be able to tell us. Andy Hayden thrown himself out of the line out for us to win the Welsh Test in nineteen seventy eight, kicked the penalty. Um,
2: I mean that is that is a form of cheating, isn't it? But in the way that he did it, it was quite light hearted. Bit of a yeah. There we go. Text come coming now. Andy Hayden jumped out of the line out Temper beard post text machines onto your water. Yeah, reading no, your
1: mind. No. Um, yeah, I am just trying to think about it. But when you think on radio, it's not good because you can't think on radio. That means silence, and then you may as well have Marcel Marceau, the great puppet. I'll uh, tell you what, shall uh, we go mine? catch
2: up with Johnny Mac? And we'll come back with a few Kiwi ones.
1: Yeah, let's see some Johnny Mac. <laughs> 27 minutes away from three. It's interesting when you go back and you look at the Andy Hayden moment, throws himself out of the line and Brian McKechnie kicks the winning penalty. Then we get the underarm incident in 1981, which we hated. And who faced the underarm? Brian McKechnie. Unbelievable, isn't it? Two of the great controversies, and Brian McKechnie indirectly is involved in both. I think the referee for that 1978 Welsh test tried to come out later on and say, no, no, Uh, the hooker um, did something illegal in the line-out, and that's what the penalty was for. And I think if you Google that, you can Google it, but the Welsh will always have you believe that it was Andy Hayden cheating. 26 minutes away from three, we didn't even have a French referee that day, did we? Uh, Let's go to the phones. Hi, Graham.
7: Oh, g'day, Mark. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah, JPR Williams was the one that What's John that? Ashworth.
1: Yeah, JPR Williams. My apologies. Yeah.
7: Okay, no, that's all right. No, he played playing for Bridge End.
1: Yeah.
7: Against the seventy, it was the same tour as Andy Hayden did the jump and and uh you know um, so whatever. Yeah, yeah that the, the yeah. great um, the um, Grand Slam tour, of Graham Murray's team.
1: Yeah. yeah. it's interesting though, isn't it, because that they love to highlight all the. Um, love to highlight all the cheap shots from the All Blacks, but I never heard the All Blacks sort of complaining too much about the cheap shots that were always put on them.
7: Oh, yeah, that that is interesting. Yeah, no, because John Ashworth played for Canterbury. So actually, an Otago fan friend of mine was giving me a hard time. He said, oh, about John Ashworth getting J.P.R. Williams a few weeks ago. He always brings that up in a bit of banter like you and I have Mm -hmm. about Auckland and Canterbury, or the Blues and Crusaders. But yeah, I know it's interesting about you're talking about Gregan too. Of course, George Smith, you know Justin Marshall. That test that where well, he said four more years, you know he um, he took him out, but you know and Justin. Said that you know, I remember seeing it on TV. He just went straight into his ribs. He did, he, I don't think he even had the ball. So yeah, because it was he, it, he got it, away it, with that. Yeah, it was Byron. And,
1: Byron Kelleher was the halfback on the field when George Gregan said four more years. Because I remember George telling me that. Yeah.
7: Yeah, Marshall but Mar- Justin Marshall went off in agony because mm. you know, ribs, You know, yeah. if you've probably anyone who's hurt their ribs, so, you know, you're breathing and you get sharp pains, and yeah, he would, and he tried to carry on and then went off. But yeah, that that test. Yeah, but it is a shame, like, too, you say um, about, like, you mentioned about Hart oh, 40 minutes ago about, you know, John Hart and, you know, the derivative of in Auckland. You don't get that. You don't get as much of that now. You know, we loved Todd Blackadder and Reuben Thorne and you guys didn't. And Well, well the thing, they, the
1: why we didn't is because the SAS are based in Auckland and we spent so much money going into the breakdown searching for Reuben Thorne and we still couldn't find him anywhere on the field, Graham. <laughs>
7: Oh know, He's doing so much work. He was the 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 ultimate engine room player. Mm. And uh, mm. talk <laughs> it up, mate, however it, you mate, want. William, you
1: you talk it up however you want, my good man.
7: <laughs> Tom Blackadder was a yeah. He was a, a great man too. A very good guy. Both of them. Um, yeah. And he um, yeah, but he, yeah, he wasn't well, wasn't a flash Harry like some of your boys. So that was always the difference. He liked he liked your guys and we liked ours. And, but it was. Different times, you know, and um, you don't, you know, even now, even though it does exist and comes out when there's a game rolling around, you know, it doesn't, um, yeah, it doesn't, uh, yeah, I mean, people like that, like, you know, even someone said to me the other day, you know, oh, it's not about... See for rugby, it's about the World Cup. Well mm. then, you know, that's you're putting you're putting all your eggs in a very flimsy basket,
10: aren't you? Very,
1: they? very flimsy basket, and that's not a good basket to put all your eggs into. I mean, let's be honest, mate. I you know, the mate, as much as you guys probably hated it, there was a lot of things that we hated at the time when you know, the Crusaders got away the blues. But, you know, Carlos Spence, mate, he was good for rugby, he was good for the rivalry, he was good for Canterbury, he was good for Auckland. You know what I mean? It's it's just yeah, I mean, it was worth turning up to, wasn't it, you know? Can well, a, can, can, Crusaders love to try and rub our face in it and try and rub, you know, and at the same time, uh, you know, Auckland just wanted to go down there and sort of shove it up here, but it had just such a high level of engagement. Oh, it did,
7: you know, and there was a rivalry with him and Andrew Mertens, mm. and that was a, a real rivalry. And, uh, Andrew, Andrew, know, Andrew,
1: and Andrew, who never heard of her?
7: <laughs> no, Carla... Spencer. Oh, they're What's calling your stadium, Carlos. Oh, Sp- no, Carlos no, Spencer no, no.
1: Field. Carlos Spencer Field in Christchurch.
7: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you have to put a submission in the film major. You know. Yeah. I, I wish you luck on that one. But you know, but it was a good rivalry, and you know, it, it got everyone fired up. But you know, you see footage of that you know, even from the 1990s. Mm. Well,
1: and do you, you remember? Think, do you remember? Yeah. Someone's, someone's just texting here. Richard Lowe like, broke the nose of Aussie Paul Carrozza. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And then he had the eye gouging incident.
7: <laughs> yeah, he's playing for Waikato, then, of course. But yeah, hmm. he did come back to Canterbury. Richard Lowe.
1: Maybe, I... maybe the saddest one regarding a rugby player, probably when you look at the way it played out later in life, uh, might have been Keith Murdoch. You know, um, yeah, you know that that that. Yeah, you, you say so you punch a security guard or whatever, but yeah, the impact of that decision to send him home ultimately changed the course of his life in a in a really tragic direction.
7: Oh, exactly. It was. Yeah, it was a. Yeah, he was a. Yeah, well, you, you know, I've read different things and heard different things, and you know, he was a bit different, but he, he got cornered and not. He didn't get looked after. Now that he, for all the bad things, now that someone like him would be, probably, were better managed and backed up before something like that yeah. happened. But you know, but I thought just before I finished, you know, of course, when Greg Chappell came out here after the the year yeah. after the Underarm. I remember the game. I think it was at Eden Park. Oh, so oh, I, oh, 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 oh,
1: oh, I was there. Fifty-five thousand people were sitting around the ropes. Somebody rolled a ten-pin bowling ball out onto the ground, and I've got a feeling it was around that series that Martin Crowe actually made his debut as a youngster.
7: Yep, but that was yeah. That, but he was the ultimate villain in that series. And you know, I remember at Lancaster Park, he got a hard time. And but seeing it on TV, the bowling ball that was hilarious. Yeah, but it was um, oh Lord Ted, I think was up on the stand mm. <laughs> on the terrace. Uh, the, you know, in your um achieved the chief of seats at Eden Park. But yeah, but he, yeah, he became the ultimate villain because that was a, a year later. or well, not even, but, well, but yeah, it a you, year you, later.
1: You imagine Nick Kerrios came out here and played. It'd sell out in two minutes, wouldn't it, the tennis? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it would because, yeah, we, we like, as I say, man's defeats are on the front pages of the newspapers. Man's victories are on the back. It's because we like a bit of a train wreck. It's because we like a bit of adversity, Graeme.
7: Exactly. No, but now it's all about, you know, control, um, about blandness and sameness and, you know... Boring. um,
1: And and trying to make out that we as mankind don't like flaws and that we're all perfect and that we're of the highest moral standing and how anybody break that code. And it's just dumb, dumb sports marketing.
7: Yeah, and that's what you get, people not going and it's just... Mm. Well, we've talked about it many times, but yeah, but yeah, the, the tennis does still throw up, because it's a very individual sport, mm. it'll always throw up those sort of characters, you know, and, they, um, that, and that's one of the great things about tennis, actually.
1: Mm. Hey, Graham, lovely to have you on the programme, always enjoy talking to you, mate, you always bring a uh, real level of intelligence, and, and that's a lot coming from a Cantabrian, mate, it really <laughs> is, that really is coming from a Cantabrian, is it, is it true down there, the family tree's a straight line? It's a bamboo shoot. No, we should probably let Graham go anyway. Just having a joke, just having a joke. The village of the damp. Have some fun. Can't have some fun anymore, can we? <laughs> hey, someone texting about Simon Pullman. Now, Simon Pullman was one of our best ever decathletes, got fourth at the fourth at the World Track and Field Championships. There was always murmurings around drug use, and he was actually asked, and he never really gave a definitive answer either way. But um, putting that to one side, after his career, he was caught. Importing teddy bears that were full of ecstasy And he actually did three years in jail So a villain or just a guy who did stupid stuff Highly intelligent Simon Pullman. I love this one The Tanaru manga tangle on, on, on Brian O'Driscoll Bloody Moaning Lions Yeah Brian O'Driscoll So overrated as a player So overrated Not even in the same class as Umanga, as Bunce, as Bruce Robertson, as Joe Stanley. But he played for Ireland, he played against England and the Northern Hemisphere sides and he actually had a sidestep which was something not seen of in the UK. So he must be the greatest of all time. He never did anything when he played us. 17 and a half minutes away from three. You can text us here on the bed Bedpost text machine, double eight, double three. You can phone the programmer 0800 158 811 Don't go away because next we've got the Bailey's Property of the Week and you don't want to miss this bad boy. Our Bailey's Property of the Week. Now, this is a picturesque 202 hectare grazing property located in the strong community-focused Ellsthorpe District which is in the Hawke's Bay. Now, it's brought to market by Tim Wynne-Lewis and Tony Rasmussen by Bailey's Havelock North. Its address is 2412 Kahuranaki Road. It's 34 kilometres south of Havelock North, with Elsthorpe School just minutes away. Now, the property has three building sites with resource consent. Now, these range from 5,000 square metres to 9,000 square metres. It's got a mix of predominantly easy-to-medium contour. The farm has historically wintered around 10 stock units per hectare and is perfect, well, a perfect combination of breeding and finishing livestock, or you could run in conjunction with a larger block. The property has excellent natural and reticulated stock water and features numerous dams, a large lake, making this a duck shooter's delight. Now, improvements include a large implement shed, workshop, and ancillary buildings with a combination set of sheep cattle yards, and a loadout, really important, that is near the road. Workability is excellent with a metal track and laneway providing great access to a centrally located woolshed, sheep and cattle yard complex. Now, this attractive property has plenty of options for an absentee owner, forest investor, or live on the land family. Now, if you want more information, you need to go to the Bailey's website. So you go to baileys.co.nz, then you put in the forward slash. Now, take this number down, eight. 53171. That's 2853171. It's a 202 hectare grazing property. Okay, it is south of Havelock North, 34 kilometres. You've got the local school, Elsthorpe School, three building sites, as mentioned, a mix of easy to medium contour. Historically wintered around 10 stock units per hectare and as I also mentioned it's perfect for a combination of breeding and finishing livestock or you can simply use it as a run-in in conjunction with a larger block. So do check it out. The address again, 2412 Kahuranaki Road, baileys.co.nz forward slash Got to say, sounds like a bloody good lifestyle property. Really good business opportunity. What a beautiful part of the country. Got to say, love Havelock North, love the Hawks Bay. It is coming up to 10 minutes away from 3 o'clock. We're going to talk some cricket on the programme after 3. Bharat Sundarasan. Sundarasan. Bharat Sundarasan. Am I saying that correctly, boys? I don't think I've spoken to Bharat before. Yeah, Bharat Sundarasan. Brilliant. Yep. Bhara Sundarasan, this guy is cricket. He knows everything about cricket. We got the Black Caps in action tonight. First One Day International against India. Just won the series against Pakistan. Can we beat the Indians in India? Do we take in three spinners again, or does that just a mouthwatering opportunity for the Indians? Opportunity two for Ajaz Patel, who took ten wickets in a test against the Indians. Does he come in? Does he live rent free inside the Indians' heads? Is he our go-to guy? Or is it going to be Ish Sodi? Michael Bracewell, perhaps. Just really nice to see us taking three spinners in. I have noticed, I think, under Tim Southey, there was a little bit of a baseball mentality here. Certainly in test cricket. Does that equate into one-day cricket? I guess we'll find out. You can follow that live on ESPN Crick Info. Uh, just um, some texts come in. We've just been talking about villains and Um, people that, sports people that we hate, and that's a strong word. Um, Daniel Loder, not sure if he was a villain, but definitely quirky. Oh, Daniel Loder was never a villain. Daniel Loder was just misunderstood. Daniel Loder never got the recognition he deserved because he didn't have the colourful personality, didn't have the personality of, say, a, a Sarah Ulmer, didn't know how to necessarily communicate and endear himself. But I'll argue that's also that introverted side of him was also the reason why he was just so damn hard, so damn tough. I say this, I put him up there alongside of Peter Snell as our greatest ever Olympian. I don't think there's much in it. You know, Snell was winning at a time when the African nations weren't really heavily involved. He had the Arthur Lydia training program, which was revolutionary, um, which changed the game, which is the stock standard weight. Athletes still train now. Lydia was ahead of his time, therefore Snell had that advantage. Um, sport was probably still in its infancy a little bit. You go to the Olympic Games... Swimming is the biggest sport in the first week of the Olympics. Now, Ian Thorpe didn't win the two and four hundred freestyle in his first games in two thousand. He was beaten by Van den Hugenbahn in the two hundred. He had to wait until two thousand and four to do it. Loder won the two and four hundred blue ribbon freestyle events. The guy trained on his own at Moana Pool in Dunedin. Cold morning's pretty much on his own. Also won a silver and butterfly four years earlier at a young age. Remarkable athlete, Daniel Noda Should be knighted. How he's not knighted is beyond me. If you're going to knight Lisa Carrington, if you're going to go and knight others like Valerie Adams, then surely you have to knight Daniel Loder that must be my cue. Uh, no ball-by-ball coverage um, of the cricket tonight. Uh, you can follow, of course, through ESPN Cricket And As a number of people have reminded me, of course, um, yeah, no, Asia's Patel in that one-day squad, Michael Bracewell, Mitch Santner, um, of course, and possibly Ish Sody, um as our three spinners. It'll be interesting to see whether they play Doug Bracewell, um, Jacob Duffy, possibly Lockie Ferguson, um, bowling attack from a... Pace bowling, well, that's been well and truly decimated. One of the big questions is do you start Mark Chapman or do you go with Henry Nichols? Daryl Mitchell, Tom Latham, Glenn Phillips. Can't get Glenn Phillips out. That'll be the big talking point with the London, with the England uh, test series coming up. Do you go Glenn Phillips? Or do you go Nichols? I go Glenn Phillips. I just think we want a bit of Spark. I just think we want something different. Even though, even though uh, Nichols does average 47 at home. And I think eight of his nine test hundreds or seven out of his eight test hundreds have been scored in New Zealand. Sounds a bit like David Warner, doesn't it? Anyway, new sport and weather coming up next, and we will talk some cricket after three o'clock. He is just moving. He's loving his gunners. He's loving his use Your illusions one and two. He's a good man. We've got him all pumped. Yesterday we very much went down Nirvana. I'm thinking maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow we can do some Chris Cornell. Um, I would love my Ronnie James Dio. Best album, best album is one of the dark horse albums of all time. I'm often asked what my favorite albums are. And I have to go Appetite for Destruction from Guns N' Roses first. Um, Temple of the Dog but there's a band called Rainbow. The album's called Rainbow Rising. Ronnie James Dio on vocals, Richie Blackmore on guitar, Cozy Powell on drums. Just one of the great underrated albums of all time. Google it. Google it. Um, <laughs> Bharat Sundarizan joins us on the programme. Mr Cricket himself, a bit of a, a, a connoisseur when it comes to all things cricket, joins us out of Australia. Afternoon to you, Bharat. Welcome.
9: Afternoon, and I can't believe you didn't say Rust in Peace* by Megadeth. I mean, that has to be the greatest album of all time, all genres included.
1: That is brilliant, Barrett. I was going to ask you, and I don't have to ask you because you jumped in, (laughs) you read the situation, and you named something brilliant. Love it.
9: Uh, No, no, thank you so much for 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 having me. And uh, yeah, I mean, I might love my cricket, but uh, yeah, metal music comes first. (laughs)
1: <laughs> hey, OK, so we've got New Zealand taking on India in a, a one-day series. How do you beat the Indians in India? <laughs> uh,
9: it's, I mean, uh, it's interesting. I mean, India have this indomitable record when it comes to test cricket. Uh, what, they've lost just two test matches in the last many, many years. Uh, but when it comes to one-day cricket, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, they can blow hot and cold at times. Uh, uh, But, yeah, I mean, they're just coming off this uh, uh, great series win. But also, uh, you know, the return of Virat Kohli uh, to that scary batting form that uh, we thought will never go away a few years ago. Uh, And and New Zealand, funnily enough, I mean, I was just looking up the stats. India have played, what, three ODI series in New Zealand uh, in the time between the last time New Zealand went there, when I was still living in India. I remember covering the series. Um, and now, so I don't know when you, the black caps have been all this while, uh, but, the, but the way to beat India is just uh, hit them hard early uh, and, you know, kind of hope that a couple of couple of your players just have a great series. I mean, Tom Latham, I remember, chased on a big total in, in Ross Taylor's company in Mumbai the last time I covered a New Zealand ODI in India. Uh, so they need something like that. I mean, and to start off the series in that fashion.
1: Mm. Virat Kohli, obviously, you know one of the highest profile cricketers in the world. Very much the focal point of this Indian team. Um, you've got to get him under control early. You've got to try and get him back in the pavilion. Is there a weakness with Virat Kohli? Is Is there a way you can exploit him?
9: Um, I mean, for, for the longest time, it was just not to say anything to him, <laughs> not to get him. Uh, he he's almost one one of those sports. Persons right, like who who needs to be in that heightened sense, uh, all a sense. It needs to be heightened to that level where he gets gets into that zone when he just has nothing in his mind but to but to beat you to be, get the better of you. Um, and uh, unfortunately, because he's uh, unfortunately for the opposition teams around the world, because he's had a, a sort of a lull by Virat Kohli standards, especially last year where he averaged what in the twenties, which is you uh, un- know it was never. Uh, been seen before. Um, I think he he just let that get get under his skin and uh, just to get get him riled up and that's what is seen his return to form of in some sense like just uh, even uh, 166 he made the other other day. Uh, but in terms of cricketing weakness, um, not really. I mean the one bowler that New Zealand will miss is Tim Saudi, who's had such a great record against Virat Kohli across all formats. Uh, but, of course, the Black Caps have rested uh, Saudi. So uh, there goes your one firepower. Uh, but, um, yeah, maybe just keep the openers out there so that Willard Curry doesn't get a bad
1: meeting. Noish Sodi, we had a, a three-spin attack in the recent series against Pakistan. Looking like then that will take in Michael Bracewell, um, will take in Mitch Santner. Do the Indians fear spin bowling? Is it an effective form of slowing the run rate down when you're playing in India? In India?
9: I mean, really depends on the pitches uh, because you also have to remember India is almost like made up of different countries. or you know in terms of uh, weather conditions and pitch conditions, and uh, Hyderabad historically um, uh, can be low and slow, uh, but it can also be really good for good for batting. But uh, but the New Zealand spinners in particular, I mean Ish Sodhi and Mitchell Santner uh, have a very good record uh, playing against India in India. Uh, And like we saw in that series against Pakistan, they did play a big role. Uh, I think it'll it'll come down to how they are captained as well. Uh, I think, uh, you know, how Tom Latham has now captained New Zealand a few times across formats. But it really depends on uh, what kind of role they're given uh, and uh, whether they're used as attacking options. And Soti is a huge miss. I mean, he's developed into this uh, all-format bowler in the last couple of years. And not having him for that first ODI will, will hurt New Zealand. Uh, but what we've seen, I mean, Santner, uh, you know, he's an IPL star in his own right. And Michael Brace has come along really well. So I don't think it's a it's a, it's an aggressive weapon at times. Uh, but, you know, you also have an Indian middle order who plays spin so well. So uh, you can be uh, up for hiding against nothing. But uh, I think it'll come down to what, what Tom Latham wants of them and how he uses them, the field he sets for them.
1: Mm. Now, people might not be that familiar with Mohammed Siraj because we haven't seen a lot of the Indians in recent times. But since the start of 2022, he is the leading wicket-taker among bowlers from four-member teams. Now, he's taken 33 wickets at an average of 19.87. Tell us a little bit about Siraj and how how do you try and take him out of this match?
9: (laughs) No, I mean, um, it's a fascinating story. I mean, he comes from very humble... Uh, 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 beginnings, uh, you know, he uh, literally, like you know, cricket was was his family's way out in a way of uh, kind of just changing things around for not just him, but everyone else around him. Uh, And he's always had like more self-confidence than than the average guy. I mean, back in the day when he was just starting out in domestic cricket, uh, he fortunately had, uh, you know, Bharat Arun, who then later on became the bowling coach of India as his state coach. Uh, And they kept contact and he would keep messaging Bharat Arun saying, look, I'm good enough. When are you going to pick me for India? When are you going to push my name for India? Uh, And we uh, saw him really make an impression on that Australia tour two years ago when um, when India came here and famously won that Test Series and won at the Gabba. Uh, where because of so many injuries, Mohamed Siraj just went from debuting in a second te- or the second test of the series to becoming the senior most bowler in the fourth test of the series, and that's where he really came into the limelight. Um, he's uh, uh, really developed his white ball skills in the last uh, 18 months or so. He used to be very expensive, uh, but he's also one of those bowlers uh, uh, who just finds ways of taking wickets. Um, so, I mean, it, the one thing teams have done against him, even in the IPL, is to really go mm. after him early on uh, and put the pressure right back on him. I mean, that's the only way out. Because if you don't, he has the knack, he has; he can seam the ball around, he swings the ball around uh, to get you out in many different ways.
1: Mm. OK, we talked about how effective New Zealand spin bowlers might be and you mentioned the fact, well, it will come down on the pitch preparation. This game has been played in Hyderabad. Is there a lot of variation Based on the geography of India when it comes to pitches, or are they all a little bit the same? And if that is the case, describe the type of pitches you get in India.
9: Oh, I mean, they're really different, especially in this time of the year. It's February, so you're kind of nearing the end of winter. Uh, and if you know anything about the geography of India, like so, even if you compare to the two major cities like Delhi and Mumbai, uh, Delhi would be like three, four degrees right now. Uh, Whereas back in Mumbai, where I'm from originally, uh, even if the temperatures touch like 17 or 18 degrees Celsius, we think it's winter. (laughs) So as a result, uh, the the pitches also or the conditions, weather conditions have a huge role. The kind of clay, the kind of soil that is used in the north is different to the south. So Hyderabad is in the south uh so uh, you you'll see a, a more hardness in some of those pitches uh, and and not every pitch in 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 india turns square like in you know, a lot of teams go there uh, just imagining or just assuming that that's going to happen i mean you see the three odi venues for new zealand this time uh, hyderabad like i said will be low and slow but it will be really good to bat on uh, raipur at this time of the year could could maybe the ball could swing around just because of the weather conditions and the time of the year we are playing the, these games in. Uh, and Indore is once again really, really flat and that's closer to the centre of India. So it will still be pretty warm uh, even for this time of the year. So it is, it is, it, it, that adds to the whole fascination of cricket itself in India because uh, from one place to another, things change dramatically.
1: Yeah, look, there's incentive here for the Indians to try and win the series 3-0 because if they do it, They become the number one one one-day side in the world on the rankings. Is is that a relevant statistic in India? Is that something that the Indians put a lot of pride in?
9: Indians just want the Indian team to win every match, regardless of what they're playing in. (laughs) Trust me. Especially when it comes to cricket, even if it's a game of book cricket, they want the Indian team to win and Virat Kohli to make a hundred in book cricket. But uh, no, and and no, no. That number one rank would um, obviously be uh, something that they would want to get leading into that World Cup. I think uh, or, or every team's focus right now is that 50 over World Cup, which is, what, just seven, eight months away. And because it's in India, it's a huge incentive for New Zealand to, whether they win the series or not, just to get used to those conditions, what they will be facing later on in the year. Um, and similarly for India, I mean, they don't have to qualify for this World Cup since they're hosting it. Uh, but to, if they can march into that World Cup as the number one ranks in the side, apart from being host. Uh, and apart from being the first country to ever won a 50-over men's World Cup on home soil back in 2011, it, it just it just you know adds to mm-hmm. their confidence. Um, they're missing a couple of key players as well, uh, but you know Rohit Sharma, ever since he's become captain, hasn't really got a long run because he's been hit by injury quite a few times. So this is the, the road to the World Cup has already be, begun, and obviously India would want to win this. Um, and you know, I mean set their, uh, that journey towards the World Cup trophy on, on track.
1: Okay, um, I mean, clearly it's a religion in India, cricket, in a sporting sense. We know the reputation of Australia, we know the reputation of England. How is New Zealand cricket perceived over there? Are we a bit of the laughing stock? Are we taking seriously?
9: <laughs> oh, no, 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 not at all. I mean, uh, New Zealand cricket is a, uh, much adored in in India, and uh, and not to forget that New Zealand have had this uncanny knack of knocking out India in knockout games in, in big events. Right, they did it in the 2019 World Cup, 50 over World Cup. Uh, they they've they've done it recently as well. Uh, in the T20 World Cup, they beat India famously in that first-ever World Test championship final in Southampton a couple of years ago. Uh, so there's one team that um, India, if there is one team that they won't take lightly up outside Australia and England, uh, it is New Zealand, because New Zealand have produced those kind of performances. Uh, in India against India, historically, uh, and they've always like brought something new. I remember when they famously beat India in the opening uh, game of the World T20 uh, in Nagpur back in 2016, which India was hosting. as Mitchell, Santer and Ish, so the outspun India on a spinning track. So you never know what to expect from the New Zealand team, which kind of makes New Zealand even more dangerous (laughs) in some levels than an Australian or in England. Uh, And no, no, nobody in India takes New Zealand
0: like that. Okay,
1: but no bolt, no Saudi first time since 2010. If you go into the TAB, you're putting your money here, aren't you? You're going to put your money on the Indians (laughs) tonight, aren't you, surely?
9: Uh, you, I mean, you would want to, but I don't know. Like I said, like it, it, even with those guys, uh, nobody backed New Zealand to even uh, beat India once uh, when they last played there six years ago, like I said, when I was still around in India. But they did. They chased on the big total uh, on the basis of, of that one big partnership. So even though you walk into the TAB wanting to put money on India, you might want to just think about it
1: for a while and then still put it on India. <laughs> Bara Sundarasan, we appreciate you joining us on the programme. Fantastic. Wonderful overview. Thank you.
9: No wise at all and I hope you do play some Megadeth after this month.
1: Yeah, Megadeth. You want Megadeth? We can play Megadeth. We love our Megadeth here. Good man. You're a good man. You're a good man. Yeah. 17 and a half minutes after three. We'll take a break. When we come back, we do have some audio from Peter Latham. Um, we'll break... Sorry? Tom Latham, I was, what did I say, Peter Latham, what did I say? Oh, Peter Latham, cyclist, track cyclist, Peter Latham. And I said Peter Latham instead of Tom Latham. At uh, that time of the day, lights on, nobody home. 18 minutes after three, we'll take a break. Big fella, it's Wato in the house. Uh, Mark Stafford will be back on deck next week, still with me for a couple more days. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to Bharat Sundarasan. Now, the boys told me that He's sort of like the Indian Jesus. And they showed me a photo of him because clearly I haven't met him. And, yeah, he does. He's got the sort of the Indian complexion, but he's got sort of the long hair. And you could imagine him sort of walking around Jerusalem in sort of clothes. And you could call him Jesus. It's, it's interesting, that one. Um, it always reminds me. I don't know if you guys follow your baseball or not, but there was Johnny Damon, outfielder for the Boston Red Sox, won a World Series and broke the curse um, in 2004 um 2005 and then he did the thing that you just don't do. He goes and signs with the Yankees. You just do not go from the best Boston Red Sox to the Yankees. It's like going from Liverpool to Manchester United or Manchester United to Liverpool. Great sign when he comes back and comes back into Boston. Uh, in the crowd there at Fenway Park. Johnny Damon because he had the long hair and the beard and he did look like Jesus, And so there was this great sign Looks like Jesus Acts like Judas Throws like Mary Drinks like Noah And I just thought that was brilliant Looks like Jesus Acts like Judas Throws like Mary You couldn't get a more derogatory statement To Send him a message That you're basically a turncoat That you're basically a traitor Right, let's continue our cricket theme here. Let's hear from New Zealand one-day wicketkeeper Tom Latham on the eve of this first one-day international between the Black Caps and
0: India. The cricket that we played in Pakistan was was really good, obviously somewhere that we'd never toured before, haven't toured for, for a long time, and to, to come off a series win there where it is difficult to to play was really nice. And uh, I guess for us coming here, it's just about trying to adapt to conditions as best we can, I think. Um, but Surfaces here will potentially be a little bit better than than what we had in um, in, in Pakistan. So um, just trying to stick to stick to our plans as best we can, and and yeah, and I'm I'm sure it'll be a, a competitive series. I think every time we, we play India, uh, you know, it's always a competitive series. So um, yeah, we're looking forward to to what's coming up. Yeah, as so said, this is our sort of last opportunity um, to to play in these conditions before the World Cup in, in October and November, which uh, you know isn't too far away. So. I guess for us it's trying to uh, take as many learnings as we can um from these conditions Uh, as i said we're lucky enough where most of the guys have played uh, in in these indian conditions before so um yeah i don't think we've played a one day or at um, any of the venues that we're that we're playing at so um, i guess for us it's trying to yeah Get used to the conditions and get and familiarise ourselves with different surfaces that we may be faced with uh, during the World Cup. As I said before, we're lucky enough. Where we've played these guys, um, you know, played India a lot, whether it be here or back home over over recent years. So, um, yeah, as I said, we we plan for all these guys. We do our scouting uh, as best as possible, and uh, and I guess talking to guys that have played played them before, whether it be in the IPL or uh, in different series, in terms of. Um, you know, trying to read, uh, you know their different deliveries. So um, yeah, we'll certainly do be doing our best to to try and negate them. Um, obviously, spins a big thing over here in India. So uh, you know, we're really excited about um, you know the three games coming up and the one day series.
1: The probable lineup for New Zealand: Finn Allen at the top of the order. I still think there's question marks around him. Devon Conway. Then I guess do you go Mark Chapman or Henry Nichols? I. Just with the uncertainty of Finale, and I'm sort of maybe you go with the experience of Henry Nichols. Daryl Mitchell at four, Latham at five, Glenn Phillips at six, Michael Bracewell at seven, Santner at eight. Then you've got nine and ten, you've got either Shipley, Bracewell, or Jacob Duffy, and then at 11, Lockie Ferguson. They're talking about pitch conditions in Hyderabad. It's likely to aid spin. Well, I think that goes without saying. Uh, I'll just give you a little bit of a rundown on what they're saying on ESPN Crack Info about it. It says, in six one-day internationals at the Rajiv Gandhi International Stadium, spinners have averaged 38.70 and conceded 4.96 runs per over, both significantly better than fast bowlers' corresponding figures. Um, fast bowlers' figures are 40.84 and 5.74. In and the most recent one day here, in March 2019, India won by six wickets after their spinners. Guldeep Yadev, Ravinda Jadeja, and Kedar Jadav returned combined figures of 27 overs, no Maidens, 3 for 110, to restrict Australia to 236. Expect spin. Therefore, to play a significant role on Wednesday, the weather is set to be clear with a maximum temperature of 31 degrees Celsius. So looking forward to hopefully waking up tomorrow morning or because I've got to say, I won't be watching it through to the end. I'm an old man these days. I just don't do it. And part of the reason, too, is I'm not really sure what the significance of the series is. And that's one of the big problems that's facing cricket. What does this all mean? Is this a legacy series? Do we in two years' time remember this? Oh, we better in a one-day series? Do you remember that the nineteen-eighties? It would have been considered a great moment, but there is just so much one-day cricket now. We've got no Southie, we've got no Bolt, we've got no Kane Williamson. I mean, how seriously are we taking it? And this is one of the biggest problems facing cricket. But we might have something to talk about tomorrow. The great thing with cricket is you can lose, but you can still have a player scores a hundred, a player who does something exceptional with the ball, and so you sort of get the story within the story. It's quite unique. It's an individual game, but it's a team game. But any chance you get to go to India, and it's only when you go to India and you realise how big the game is um, and how much kudos will go the way of New Zealand if they can win a game. It is coming up to 3.30. We're going to bring you news, sport and weather. And then following that, we're going to do a little segment called Love Racing Education. And so we're going to Bring a guest on, Sam Burgesson, and we're going to talk about strapping. What the hell is strapping? You hear the term a lot in and around horse racing. We're going to find out, uh, get a basic definition of some of these terms that you hear every day as part of this sort of, um, I guess, broadening our horizons on things like horse racing.
5: Appetite for Destruction,
1: largest-selling debut album in history in the United States, thirty million copies. Very much being the backbone, big part of my life. Great tune, great song, not a bad song on it. Scary thing is, when you come out with an album like that first up, where do you go to? How do you better it? Pearl Jam did ten. They managed to evolve. Guns and Roses, Illusions One and Two, GNR Lies managed to continue it, do it differently. You don't want to be that band. I think Counting Crows are a little bit guilty of it with August and Everything After. You just come out with a stunning first-up album. You go, hey, where do we go? How do we build on that? Tough to do. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> anyway, we're going to educate and update and educate myself and all things racing. Sam uh, Burgenson joins us on the program. Sam, good afternoon. Morning, welcome, evening. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Um, thanks for having me. No worries. Now, how would you define your role within racing?
10: Um, so I'm the assistant trainer for um, Tiaka Racing, so for Mark Walker.
1: Okay, and you have been what they call a strapper?
10: Yes, yes, so, um, sort of um, worked in racing my whole life. Um, and, yeah, so strapped um, and looked after horses, yeah, for, mm-hmm. for a long time.
1: Okay, what is the purpose of strapping? What, Why do you strap a horse? And we're not talking about whipping a horse. We're talking about clearly like a sports person, basically putting sports tape on them?
10: So, so yeah, so so strapping on race day, um, sort of uh, just the role of sort of taking care, care of the horse. So um, you sort of um, go through the normal routine in the morning um, and then you'll sort of put them on the float, travel with them, um, go to the races, um, give them a shampoo, make sure they're all nice and tidy, presentable, Um and sort of walk them around before their race, warm them up a little bit, um, settle them up um, with the trainer, and then you're sort of, um, enters your sort of pre-race routine. So out in the bird cage and the jockey's on, so, so, um, they'll so, race.
1: So, so this has got nothing to do with putting tape around their joints or anything, a strap. See, that's what I thought it was, and that's the reason why I threw to it, because this is what I'm loving about it. So really, you're, um, you're pretty much the manager of the day of the horse. Is that what you're saying?
10: Yes, yes, yep. For sure, so no, not some some jo- um, horses will get there um, so j- some joints wrapped in case they sort of um, touch them or sort of hit them with their other legs or things like that, um, but yeah, it's more to do with the yeah, the, the actual day to day care of the horse
1: yeah, and it is every horse i'd imagine's got its own personality, so therefore. As a strapper, do you have to adjust the way you do things on the day to ensure that the horse is relaxed sh- sure that the horse is calm that it's going to be that coiled spring when it, uh, it does you know get out of the blocks?
10: yeah for sure it's um they definitely are um, not one and the same. Um, some horses um get there and they'll they'll just go and uh, um we call them the ups where they um where you sort of tie them up and saddle them and things and they'll just fall asleep whereas some will like to sort of be warped and like to be kept busy um some of them are thinkers they sort of worry about a lot of things, and some of them nothing worries them so um yeah like 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 you say they're all different um and you sort of just um you sort of get to know them at home and um sort of take it from there and just do things just do little um little things that just just to keep them happy and to keep them as relaxed as possible.
1: Okay, so I'm going to ask you this then. So what separates a, a good strapper from a brilliant strapper?
10: Um, well, I think a brilliant strapper really knows their horse. Um, like I said, you, it's all about sort of trying to make them conserve as much energy for the race as possible, and that's sort of by keeping them happy and relaxed um, and and just comfortable. So, look, I think a really good strapper sort of will know their horse well, um, and then out in the parade ring as well sort of just – keep them out of trouble, keep them nice and relaxed. Um, and normally if the strapper is nice and relaxed, the horse is relaxed. They're sort of looking looking to you for reassurance. Um, obviously, it's sort of a big occasion mm. for them. They don't go to the races every day. So, um, mm. yeah, it's just sort of guiding them and, and making their trip as happy mm. as possible.
1: Uh, look, I'm going to ask you this, and it's going to sound like oh, I'm taking the mickey or I'm not being serious, but a serious question. When you've got them in the float or when you're with them, do you play any certain types of music? I mean, do do horses have an affinity for music or is it is that just a dumb question?
10: No, it's it's, it's sort of funny like um, like at the races when they hear like say the announcer speaking or whatever that all sort of spark them up a bit so sometimes like say if the races are at Matameta, because we have a stable at Matameta, we'll leave the radio on um, and leave the music up loud so they sort of listen to music and that sort of they're sort of used to that rather than like sort of different noises and things like that. And sort of when you're leading them around as well, um, this might sound weird, but you sort of talk to them because they're sort of, yeah, it's sort of reassuring for sort of even both of you, I guess.
1: No, I was going to ask you that about horse whispering. We've all seen that sort of movie. We've all heard about the term. But when you're there in the floater with it, you know, whispering in the horse's ear or talking to it, I mean, how much science is in that? How how much truth to say horse whispering in terms of that relationship with a horse?
10: Yeah, I think um I think it's yeah, sort of the tone. I think um I I think it is it is sort of proven I wouldn't know the exact science behind it, but yeah, it's more the tone and like yeah, I think it's it's quite it's quite a big big thing for them, the races. Like there's a lot of people, like a big crowd, a lot of noise. Um so yeah, it, Some people probably don't believe in it, but I think, yeah, for sure, it's definitely reassuring and just just trying to keep them nice and relaxed.
1: Mm. Okay, what about when you've got them in the float or you've got them in the stables or you get them to the particular track? In terms of the ambience, in terms of the stables, is is it bright lights, is it darker? Does it come down to the individual horse? I mean, all of those little idiosyncrasies, all of those little subtle things, do certain horses... Prefer a different type of environment than say others
10: yeah for sure yep um, like we said earlier they all, they're all different um, I um, the Carica millions coming up on Saturday night and that's probably probably the biggest night um, afternoon and night in racing um, and there will be a lot of sort of flashing lights, lots of crowd, lots of music um, so that tends to um, sort of get horses a bit more worked up so you've got to be a bit more careful um, and yeah just keeping them relaxed so if, of The horses sort of prefer a relaxed environment, sort of like been quiet, um, not too much going on. Um, so yeah, so Saturday night will be sort of a big one. It's just trying to keep them sort of out of trouble um, and yeah, as relaxed as possible.
1: Yeah, Sam, I was going to ask you that. Look, I come from a sort of an endurance sport background, and I always say you've got to show your body in training what happens on race day. So if you're going to race at 6.30 in the morning, get used to training at 6.30 in the morning. You've just, and I know you touched on a little bit earlier with having the radio going at the stables and stuff, but you've said the fact that there's bright lights. Suddenly, this is a different environment for the horse. It's greater than the sum of its parts on Saturday night. So do you have to sort of try and mimic that environment a little bit in training back at the stables?
10: Yeah, sort of in a sense. So we have to work them early morning. Um, so that's probably not replica to race day, but they go to like, say, they'll have things that we call jump outs, which is like a replica of a race and then trial races as well. Um, and then obviously race day is sort of on Saturday, it's a, um, sort of like a grand final for a lot of these horses. So they've actually had sort of three or four runs into their prep. So they're sort of getting used to, getting used to it. Um, and as they get older, they get more used to the races. Um, you'll find, like, there's um, a big two-year-old race on Saturday. And it's obviously a lot of them, it's only their third or fourth start. So you'll see them a lot more worked up mm. than say, the older horses um, and the other races. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it comes down to experience. It's sort of as the older they get... Um, the calmer and more relaxed they get.
1: Okay, I want to ask you this then. So you're as a strapper, you've got the, you've got the horse nice and relaxed, you've used your um, all your skills, your tone of voice, uh, your mannerisms, you've already said the horse gets a pretty good feel if you're relaxed, they're relaxed. Then you suddenly turn the horse over to the jockey. How important then is the jockey sort of almost follows on from what you've been doing and almost um, replicates some of the body language and some of the things you've done?
10: Yeah, it's it's a massive. Obviously, some the the top jockeys um, in New Zealand and around the world, you'll find they're very cool, calm, um, relaxed customers. Not a lot phases them, Mm. and also a lot of them will ride um, track work in the mornings, and say they will ride. A a lot of them will have ridden these mounts before they get on them, say, um, in in the morning or even in a trial or previous races. So. Like, it helps having a jockey that's sort of ridden the horse before and knows the horse almost like the strapper. The, sort of, the more they know, the more they can do to keep the horse nice and relaxed and calm.
1: Mm-hmm. No, fascinating. Now, fascinating. Now, look, just for people that are tuning in, and again, this is about educating people on racing, and we, people hear a lot about the Karaka Millions this weekend. Um, but just, just, yeah, just again, just for everybody out there, just provide an overview of exactly what this track meet is and what the big two races are.
10: So it sort of um, it normally leads into the Karaka sales. Actually, this year it's a different setup up with Ellerslie um, being out of action. That's actually at Pukekohe Park um, on Saturday. But there's sort of two $1 million races, um, the Karaka Million two-year-old and then the three-year-old classic. Um, and they have to be bought from our national sale um, up at Karaka. Um, and when they're bought, they've registered um, for this race. Um, so, so for the two-year-olds, the sort of the top 14 and the three odds, the top 16 um, best horses from um, their age group um, sort of race for a million dollars, two separate million-dollar races, and then there's another um, three or four um, group enlisted races. So it's really um, the top sort of horses that have come out of our national sale are normally all there. Um, it's great prize money, they get a great crowd, and it's sort of a um, a big social gathering um, for a lot of racing people and non-racing people um, I found sort of friends um, that aren't that don't follow racing too much. Sort of have gone and found it like a, a great experience. Um, but yeah, it's a great night of racing, and it's a twilight event as well, so it sort of leads mm. into the night. And yeah, there's normally a big party that follows.
1: And what horses have you and your stable got competing?
10: Um, so we've got um, fortunate enough. Um, I work for Tiaka, who's sort of at the moment the, the biggest. Um, stable in the country. So we've actually got seven in the two year old race, um, and two in the three year old race. Um and then a, a lot of good horses on the undercard as well. Um sort of group sort of group one horses, which are sort of the top top horses in New Zealand, um, like Imperators and Maze and Bell and things like that. Um so we've got a lot of nice chances, but I'm saying that you need a lot of luck on uh, in the at the big events. Um uh barrier draws and the jockeys rides and a lot of things come into it. So you need a lot to go right to have a, a
1: successful night. Well, Sam Burgesson, thank you for joining us on the program. Love the insight. i certainly learned a hell of a lot. Um, I've got to say, I felt a bit stupid, and then you have sort of, certainly explained it really, really well. Look, all the very best for the Karaka Millions on Saturday night, and lovely to chat.
10: Awesome. Thanks for having me.
1: There you go. Sam Burgesson telling us a little bit about racing, part of just upskilling people. I love these sorts of interviews. I'm I, fascinated. Ultimately, when they say, oh, he's a strapper, I, I just assume that you're a bit like, the gloveman in boxing that you're the strapper, that you're just putting the straps around the key joints and that's the thing, but really it that nothing at all. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more. <laughs> there I didn't hesitate. Oh we've got music now. We've got music. What are you complaining about? Little Guns and Roses, Stephen McIver. Guns and Roses, <laughs> appetite for destruction, my good man. You're wearing your love, favourite love, band's I, I, t-shirt, Flaxies.
6: Flaxies, Flaxies. New Zealand so the band. Flaxies. No, they're they're, they're single uh, brain teasers. Number nine on the New Zealand singles chart Brilliant. at the moment. Which what, is pretty cool. And what genre of music? Uh, indie surf rock. You'd love it. i out, out your I'd way. Do. Indie surf rock. Yeah. yeah. So look up Flaxies. F L A X X I E X S S. Flaxies. Flaxies. Sorry. Okay.
1: Okay, Stephen. What can we look forward to between four and seven tonight?
6: You can look forward to trying to get to the bottom of what's going on with the Tuatara not being able to train on their own home pitch. So after five, we're going to talk to Regan Wood, who's the owner of the Auckland Tuatara. Good guy. I Regan. have approached Auckland Unlimited and James Parkinson through the you know through the correct channels. They don't want to speak. We will read the statement that they are preparing right now as to what's going on. If you would have heard Smithy this morning, go on the podcast and hear Steve Mintz, the manager. Oh, that's my phone going off. I apologize for That's that. All right, mate. Um, so that we're going to do that after 5. We're going to talk to Dom Dixon the uh, Black Six goalkeeper because the Black Six are playing the World Cup in India at the moment and uh, Odisha and they've got to beat Malaysia at 8.30 tonight. I think that's live on Spark Sport. If they are to make the, the, the crossover, they have a crossover. So the top one goes through and then you cross over and all that. You know the crossover Yeah, yeah they stuff. were
1: beaten by the Netherlands, weren't they, by three four, goals four, to nil. Four, uh, no, was, three, it? was it four zip, I think? Four zip, three zip. Yeah, yeah.
6: F- because they've conceded five goals.
1: Because if they don't do successful here, you know the knives are going to come out over oh. the whole funding thing again, though, aren't they?
6: Aren't you tired of this? Everything revolves around funding. Uh, Brett Phillips. But that's half yeah. the problem. Brett Phillips, the SEN commentator. I wish I apologise for that fun That's ringing. right, mate. Um, he's going to talk just about uh, what's happening today. I'm going to play some audio uh, just after 4 o'clock of, how, uh, of Djokovic's reaction to how good the crowd were and also Andy Murray, which I thought was probably the, the match yep. of the day, four hours and 40, 49 minutes uh, with a metal hip at 35 years yeah. of age.
1: Isn't it amazing um, that Djokovic, though, he's been smart. He played that um, exhibition um, with Nick Kyrgios. He came out there last night and you're going to play the order. He basically says this is the greatest Senate court don't in the world. Don't ruin it. I don't want to, I don't want to ruin it. You're ruining it. I'm not ruining it. You've got to hear him say it. But he's doing a great job <laughs> in doing himself to the Australian public, isn't
6: he? Well, after what happened with him not being wanting but to be vaccinated. But he knows vaccinated. the importance
1: of it. Yeah, but
6: he's not going to be able to go to the US, right? The US is still saying you can't come in because you're not vaccinated. So does that hinder him in the US Open chances further down the line or any of the big Masters tournaments that play over there as well? So I I think I just love the Australian Open for a lot of reasons. Um, Just we're watching indoors at the moment because they've had rain over there and again reminds us that the ASB Classic needs a roof and I I, I see Tennis Auckland have come out saying now our priority is a roof and I'm going, "It's it's been your priority for forever.
1: Yeah, Emma Raducanu too, Britain's um, yeah. former US Open champion, takes on Coco Goff, the ASB Women's Classic winner, oh. who, who won uh, the that, that is the second round match. That is a big game on Rod Laver Arena a little bit later Ooh, on tonight. We do goodie. need to pray, break. Stephen McIver with you between four and seven tonight. Looking forward to it. That is us. That is us. The great man, the great Stephen McIver coming up after four o'clock. Special thanks to the boys, Niv, Liz Liverpool shirt. Love that man. Um, what's, what's your name? What's your name? Karen? Kieran. I was Steve. just joking. I'm joking. I was just wanting to play Niv up above Kieran and, you know, play one off against the other. It's just my quirky humour. Anyway, um, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure having your company. If you are driving around the country, do take care. Women take on the United States. Live on Sky Sport. I'm pretty sure that Stephen and the boys will keep you updated. Throughout that, as we see the United States in a sunny Wellington, thinking this is a great place and then they'll get here in July and it'll be Noah's Ark.